available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from USCFootball.com. Liner, going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we are the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. We got a great show for you today. We're going to spring preview USC and UCLA, but we got John Wilner, special guest. So we're going to talk to him about all things Pac-12. No one knows more about the Pac-12 than John, and somehow he still comes on our show, and we uh, we really appreciate that he does that. If you have any questions for us, pac12podcast at gmail.com, or if you'd rather call or text us, you can do that too, 424-532-0678. You can tweet us at Pac-12podcast, and of course the website, pac12podcast.com, where you can find all of our old episodes. And like I said, we got John Wilner. You can follow him on Twitter at WilnerHotline, at WilnerHotline. He, of course, does an amazing job covering the Pac-12 for the Bay Area News Group. John, thanks again for coming on the show. My pleasure. Always uh, always love coming on. Yeah, it's great to have you on, John. And again, just got to shout out the Pac-12 Hotline newsletter. It's basically how we come up with this show every week. <laughs> so can't thank you enough for that good work. If you out there are not subscribed to John's newsletter, get on that now. Um, subscribe to the Mercury Daily News, but uh, but also uh, subscribe to the newsletter. It's great stuff. Um, John, lots of lots of Pac-12 topics right now. Lots of stuff going on. Um, I, I guess we wanted to lead off with just a few of these big things that have come out. But I, one that's really interesting to me, and one that we tried to talk about in our own ham-fisted way. A couple weeks ago was this equity sale or the potential equity sale for the Pac-12 that's been kind of floated, uh, potentially a 10% stake being floated as a potential thing. And and the real shocking thing is Larry Scott's valuation of the Pac-12. Can you get into that? And what is playing into his valuation of the Pac-12 at something like $5 billion? Well, $5 billion on the low end. Uh, yeah. According to what the documents we saw in the Oregonian, it was five and high end was uh, eight, eight point five. And, you know, let's uh, that's a, an internal valuation that the conference came up with, along with uh, the investment bank that is helping them uh, look for a partner. And that valuation was based on a whole bunch of factors, including uh, a distribution on direct TV in the next year or two. So we'll see the market will have the ultimate say it, I have found no one who thinks that, uh, that the high end is reasonable. I've talked to a couple people who think, well, maybe they could get five. Uh, but most folks think it's, it's, you know, it's in the three, three and a half, four billion range uh even on a, a little bit of a rosy scenario but it, again it depends on exactly what they're what they're looking at what the time frame is how you're projecting the next round of media rights there's a lot of factors yeah for the the, the valuation seems high but just seems one of the, like you said it was one of those 
internal things. Um, I guess the the decision would be, is it a strategic partner or is it just like an investment bank uh, sort of, you know, just someone that's investing the money and they just want some sort of return uh, on that investment? Um, I mean, it's, it seems to make more sense if you would go with a strategic partner. If, if you think something like this happens, do you think that's the way that the conference would go? I would be mildly surprised if they just went with a cash grab and, you know, n- none of the strategic partners worked for whatever reason. And they just picked, a, a, you know, some kind of investment bank uh, to pile a bunch of cash in in exchange for, for 10%. That doesn't make any sense to me. It, it does make some sense for them to see if they could find uh, a strategic partner, someone that is going to be in with them through the next media rights negotiating cycle, which is 20, basically 2023, 24, you know, and that could be ESPN. I mean, I'm sure they're asking ESPN Fox if they're interested. It could be, uh, you know, that they're going to, I'm sure they're going to ask, uh, you know, Amazon or Facebook. I'm sure they're going to go overseas and ask uh, Alibaba or Tencent, you know, the Chinese giants, the guy who's running their search, uh, a guy named Joe Ravitch, from the rain group is the, that's the investment bank that they have the conference retained to help them with their search. Joe Ravitch has a lot of background making deals, uh, in Asia. So I'm sure they're looking over there. They're probably going to look at, uh, you know, whether IMG and Learfield would be interested. There's a whole bunch of ways they could go, but if it is just a cash grab, let's find, you know, Wells Fargo, for instance, to give us, you know, 500 million, that would be uh, a bad move. And I don't think that that's what Larry Scott wants to do. I think he really would like to get a strategic partner. With um, with the strategic partnership, um, it's interesting. I read something in, uh, I think, Kanzano's piece from uh, the end of February where one of the final kickers in it was from one of the Pac-12 officials saying essentially that when they were forming the Pac-12 network, uh, Basically, they weren't wanted as a or that nobody wanted to be their potential partner, ESPN, Fox, CBS, Discovery, even. Um, Does that jive with what you understood at the time or even now? Because it seemed like that was something that the Pac-12 was almost refusing throughout. But is is it true that they were kind of going after a partner then and then they just weren't wanted? They they looked at a lot of options. Now, I don't know for sure that they're their priority was to find a partner. You know, if you go back, they, they agreed to the deal because the time, the time frame is important for, for context. They agreed uh, to the deal with uh, ESPN and Fox for $3 billion in May. I want to say it was May of 2010. And it was then no May of 20, 2010. And then they looked for options for their, their network. You know, they went to DirecTV. That was the first place they went was DirecTV to see if, if DirecTV wanted to uh, broadcast it. And somewhere in that time, that, that summer, they, they decided that, I'm sorry, it was 2011. So then somewhere in that, that summer, they decided they want to go alone or they want a partner and they felt the best, uh, the best move at the time was to go at it alone. I don't know for sure that they were formally rejected. I think that they basically looked at every option 
And if they had gotten a killer deal with a partner, they, they may have gone that way. But I, I am pretty sure that Larry Scott, you know, wanted one and the presidents agreed with him at the time, wanted 100 percent ownership in, in the, the Pac-12 networks. So I can't confirm that completely. I can't refute it completely. But, uh, you know, it was a very open ended search back then. Uh, John, the uh, well, my voice there is going. Sorry, uh, the the fan base hasn't really uh, been. Re- I guess they haven't been very supportive of this move. When you break down the numbers, and I think you would take a look at that. Um, the 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 amount of money you're talking about each school would get for selling ten percent of the equity. It really doesn't. It, it doesn't even seem like it makes a huge difference as far as there's a big gap between what like the SEC or the Big Ten will make per year. I mean, it might only cover like a year or two of that, and then it just kind of goes away, and now you have to pay that back. Um, I mean, does does this make any sense to you trying to do like looking at it, you know, from an objective point of view? That even if it worked out for a five billion dollar valuation and all that stuff, would this really make much sense, or does it seem just kind of like a short term? I don't even know if I want to say fix, just like a short term correction or something. Yeah, it's been described as kind of a bridge loan. Which uh, you know, I, that makes that makes a lot of sense when you look at it. They've got the, you know five years basically uh, of the current situation. It's important to realize that the Pac-12 is never going to be the same as the SEC and Big Ten, right? Certainly. Because yeah. if you look at things like fan affinity, stadium size, uh, population, TV ratings, Pac-12 is not going to be at that level. The question is, though, should the gap be as great as it is right now? And going forward, and you could argue that some strategic missteps with the Pac-12 networks have uh, made the gap uh, greater than it naturally should be. And there are no, if they don't do this uh, equity sale, you know, there's nothing that's going to fix things or or even change the dynamic a little bit in the next five years. This revenue gap is going to stay. It's only going to expand when the SEC does their their CBS deal soon, uh, the Pac-12 does not have any, you know, magic revenue bullets coming in uh, between now and 2024, unless they sell some equity. And so the conf- the the schools and the conference decided, well, let's let's see what we could get, let's see what's out there, and how much interest there is in our content. I think if they can get a really good strategic partner. It's probably worth it. If they can't, then I don't. I don't think it is worth it because the gap is going to be there, like you said. You know, the the gap. The SEC is going to even if the Pac-12 sold for four hundred and fifty million, or you know, got a four hundred and fifty million dollar equity investment. When you then divide that by twelve, and then divide it by the five years between now and the the new media deal. It doesn't come close to making up the conference, the 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 gap with the SEC and the Big Ten. So they're still going to be behind, uh, significantly behind. In fact, they're basically going to be where the Big Twelve and S- ACC are after selling ten percent of their media rights. So I don't think it's clear cut either way. I do think it's smart that they're at least looking, uh, and I know that there's a very much of a wait and see mindset among athletic directors and presidents. They just kind of want to get a feel for where things are. And if, if there's a great deal out there, they may take it. And 
I would, I'm fairly confident that if there's not a great deal out there, cooler heads will prevail and they will, they will stand pat. Uh, switching gears a little bit, you had, um, I mean, just not really, we're still talking about the PAC 12 being kind of in poor shape, but, um, <laughs> we're never really switching gears from it, but we're just talking about a new angle. Um, this is actually, a, a I think a positive step, no matter how you take it. Um, you reported, uh, towards the end of February that, uh, the PAC 12 is hiring an independent firm to review kind of the football officiating, officiating process. Um, it was a, it sounds like it was at the behest of the ADs um, throughout the conference. What's your sense of this at this point? Do you think it is going to be a true and rigorous review, or is this is this at least partially just a PR move? Where where do you stand on kind of how this process is going to take place? No, I don't think it's a PR move because the conference basically we we saw the conference didn't want to do anything like this because it's been four months. And the conference office was happy with its own internal review. This was completely generated by the athletic directors. So there's a, a committee of AD, four athletic directors that basically are overseeing officiating. It's Ray Anderson of ASU, who used to run the NFL officiating. Uh, it's uh, Rob Mullins at Oregon, Scott Barnes at Oregon State, and Rick George at Colorado. And those are smart guys who get football and understand that the only way they could move forward without there being questions or uh, conspiracy theories, uh, the only way they could begin to regain some credibility in their officiating process was to bring in someone from the outside, give them access to everything and everyone and let them do their job. And it is, you know, the, the conference agreed to do it, but clearly the conference this wasn't a priority for the conference office because they've had four months and they didn't do it. All they did was, uh, the internal review back in, you know, October. So the fact that the ADs were able to push this through is a very good sign. Uh, it's a sign the conference is listening to them. And I think that, that Simpson is going to have, they're going to interview every coach, every AD, they're going to interview the officials, the supervisors of officials, the replay officials, they're going to have access to data. They're going to have access to video. They're going to look at how other conferences do it. I mean, this is going to be a thorough audit, so to speak. And that I think the conference had to do that in order to begin to regain some credibility in the process. It doesn't sound like the conference really wanted to do that um, without the be- you know hand being forced by the ADs. Do you think that the tipping point was that, you know, the, the targeting over, you know, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the, the big controversy with the USC Washington state game and, and, you know, an executive calling in, is that, was that kind of like the tipping point for the ADs, but still wasn't enough to like convince the, you know, the conference leaders to do something about it? I think that that was, I mean, that was an unmitigated disaster that was recognized as, a, as such by everyone who doesn't work on third street, you know, uh, it seemed to me, based on what how the conference responded in those first few weeks after uh, the story broke by uh, Yahoo broke the story, was, you know, we're changing our protocol, we're doing an internal review, we're going to discipline the people involved, everything's great, let's move on. Nobody was going to move on, right? I mean, that is such a colossal problem with your integrity and your credibility that nobody was going to move on. Um, and that includes the head coaches and the ADs 
And so out of that came this push for, for the outside review. And, you know, they've got the right people, the right ADs working on this committee. And, and I think that there's a pretty good chance they're going to bring in this group, Sibson, to take a look at basketball officiating as well next year. Sibson has worked, uh, done, done officiating reviews at the NFL and the NBA. And, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a great step for the conference and they should do it. I mean, they could, you could justify they should do it in every sport. Uh, just to make sure they got the processes right and that they're, you know, it's training, it's identifying officials, training officials, incentivizing officials, grading officials, everything about it is, uh, is going to be targeted by no pun intended by Simpson. And why, why wouldn't you do that for all of your sports? Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember um, when we were talking about, I think just kind of all of the TV rights um, stuff in the fall uh, one of the big notes that I found kind of surprising from, uh, I think your reporting, but also John Consano's, was just that the ADs themselves aren't necessarily huge power brokers with um, Larry Scott uh, or hadn't been. Is the fact that they were able to push him on this and successfully do so, is that a sign that Scott's, I don't know, uh, uh, power or whatever might be ebbing or his, his equity with the, the conference stakeholders might be ebbing a little bit that the ADs are able to successfully push him on this. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it certainly seems like at least with this football officiating situation, the conference has been willing to listen, but you know, the, the misstep was so gigantic and the repercussions, I mean, the integrity of your football product is at stake here. So, you know, part of me feels like the conference office didn't, didn't really have much choice here. Right. Um, I don't know, you know, if you, you name another scenario, uh, something that could go wrong, I'm not quite sure what, what the end result would be, but uh, I mean, what is more central to your product than football officiating? I mean, nothing. Cause if, if you've got the coaches wondering and the fans wondering what, you know, is Woody Dixon placing another phone call or what's going on with this targeting review. If that's happening every, you know, every week, it detracts from the game and it undermines your product. They can't, they can't have it. They should, and they've got to do it for basketball. They should have done it for basketball after the Ed Rush, Sean Miller deal. And that was what, six years ago now, the bounty on Sean Miller, that was six years ago. I don't know why they didn't do something like this then, but uh, it's I mean, it's good. Give them credit; they're doing something good, and 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 they deserve credit for it. And I'm sure, you know, we're not going to see every mistake go away next fall. But you know, let's everybody should hope that that things get cleaned up a little bit. One of the other topics, uh, John, we want to talk to you about is the potential Big Twelve. Pac-12 alliance, maybe you want to kind of fill people in what that potentially could be and what it would mean for the conference. Well, you know, a former Kansas State president came up with a strategic, was asked by the current West Virginia president to come up with ways to strengthen the Big 12 over the long haul. And the solution was a strategic alliance with the Pac-12 in which every non-conference football game would be played against the, the other league. Now, that in itself is not realistic on a whole bunch of fronts, obviously, uh, including the fact that there's no way you can make the math work so that everybody would have seven home games when they need to have seven home games for budget purposes. 
Plus, the coaches would never agree to to doing something like that where you're not playing any cupcakes. <laughs> if the Big Ten and the AC, if if the Big Ten, ACC, and SEC aren't doing it, why it puts the would put the Pac-12 and the Big 12 at competitive disadvantage. But so that official proposal, you know, not realistic. I think that they would be well served by looking into something a scaled down version where you're, you know, the Pac-12, every Pac-12 team is playing a Big 12 opponent every year or two out of every three years. And, you know, my idea is to kind of work it so that because of the, where the campuses are, you can cover all the time zones with kickoffs. So you could have a quadruple header, a quadruple header, you know, back to back, second and third weeks of the season. So eight teams from each conference would be involved, and you'd start kickoff at 9 a.m. Pacific, and last kickoff would be at 7:30 Pacific. You'd play four games, then the next week you'd play four more, and. To, it seems to me like that would do a couple of things. It would it would en- help engage fans and sell tickets, which is obviously an issue to a lot of places. And it would also create some pretty good content for your TV partners coming up here in four or five years because, you know, it's just going to be last round of TV deals. We saw the conferences got bigger, right? Because you need you needed bulk to get more money out of the TV networks. But that doesn't seem like that's going to be the case this time. I think quality is going to be quality content is going to be more important than how many teams are in your conference. And you know, a, a, a Pac-12, Big 12 alliance in which everybody's playing somebody else uh, from the other conference every year. You know, that seems to make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, it definitely does to me. Um, and it it reminds me of. Um, I think it was back in uh, 2011, 2012, when the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were um, coming up with a, a similar idea, I think, at the time, where it was uh, some sort of partnership that I think was scheduled to start in like 2017, but then it didn't end up happening, where yeah. uh, they would they would basically have a few teams playing each other every year um, and yep. you know kind of make it an, an official relationship. Um, do you think that... I, I don't know if the Big Ten would even be incentivized to do that at this point, but the Big 12, does that just seem like a better fit for for the Pac-12 at this point if they were going to make some kind of partnership among the other conferences? Yeah, I think the Big the Big Ten wouldn't do it. They don't need to do it. And they I think the Big Ten feels a little bit burned by what happened before because my understanding is that they thought it was going to happen and, and then the Pac-12 kind of reneged a little bit. I, I don't know if it was an official, anything official, but – uh, there was some resistance on the part of a few Pac-12 schools, and I think Stanford and SC were part of that because of the Notre Dame series. Uh, and that's, you know, it's understandable that those schools would have had concerns. But I think the, you know, the, the Big 12 or Big 10 didn't quite like how that thing unfolded and, and ended up fizzling out. So I don't, I don't see them be really being all that interested. The Big 12 makes a lot more sense because uh, just geographically, it makes more sense. I mean, it would it would help certainly help some Pac-12 recruiting exposure in Texas, you know, and just the the fact that the, those two conferences are closer to each other on, in a lot of ways in terms of overall strength and uh, financial strength and resources, they're closer to each other than either is to the Big Ten right now. The Big Ten and SEC are kind of on different levels. Yeah. Uh, go back to the, the officiating stuff a little bit. And your latest newsletter, you talk about the potential 
to change the targeting rule where it would be more of a progressive thing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You think something like that would happen and how would that impact the PAC 12? Yeah, I think it's going to happen. So basically the rules committee, uh, they made a whole bunch of proposals last week, two of which involve targeting specifically. The first proposal with targeting is that everything gets reviewed by the booth. If, if the booth cannot confirm targeting, uh, all of the criteria for targeting exist, then the call gets overturned. You can't have, you know, forcible contact, but not a defenseless player. You can't have the launch point, but not the forcible contact. You got to have everything's got to be in place. And then, and if it is, then the, the call is targeting. So they've raised the bar they've raised the threshold for what is targeting, which is good because now the ones that are kind of, uh, you know, iffy are, are no longer going to be targeting, but at the same time, they've also raised the punishment. So now the second time you get targeting in a season, you're out for the entire next game. instead of just a half. So they have to raise the threshold, but also raise the, the penalty. And I think that both moves are very good. So those proposals are going to be uh, reviewed by the Division One Football Oversight Committee next month, and if they're approved, they'll be put in place for for next season. And I think the Pac-12 is in, believe it or not, in a really good place to adjudicate targeting for next season because David Shaw is chair of the Rules Committee. And Ray Anderson, who we, we mentioned previously, the Arizona State Athletic Director, he is on the Division One Oversight Committee. And they have, they're bringing in this Sibson Consulting that has a lot of experience in, with football officiating. So you've got, they've got a lot of resources available to get it right next season with targeting. You know, they're not going to get 100% of the calls right, but they have got to avoid the ghastly mistakes. And I think that they're in position to do it with, with all the resources they've got here and the experience on these important committees. And so now it's just a matter of the PAC 12 applying all of its resources properly to train the officials and get it right. We don't want to go through another, another fall where every week or every other week, there's just this egregious issue with targeting. Absolutely. And I know one of the other, uh, thing that was bandied about, I think, during telecast last year was the. I think they were talking about doing a flagrant one, flagrant two. I, I can't forget. I can't remember which color commentator was making that point. I think it was Joel Klatt. Um, but doing like a flagrant one version where it's maybe they don't get kicked out of that game, but it's a bigger penalty, and then a flagrant two where they get kicked yeah. out of that game. Um, where do you stand on that? Just your take on it. Do you think this is a better plan? What you've laid out in your story where it's the, you know, they have to determine every single criteria. And then um, if they commit a second one during the year, uh, they, they get disqualified for the ensuing game or, you know, something essentially like the basketball model for flagrant fouls. Yeah. I was in favor of changing what they had. Uh, and it's almost like what they're doing is putting in a little bit of a flagrant one and flagrant two because they're raising the bar for what is targeting. The problem right. with the flagrant one and flagrant two is you end up getting, you know, if you have to assess intent on the defensive player's part, it's problematic. And the other issue is 
just the football plays, right? I mean, if the defensive player is coming in with proper tackling technique based on the current environment of what, you know, with targeting, and he is doing exactly what he has been taught for the last two or three years, and the running back lowers his head at the last second, it can be targeting, even though the defensive player is doing everything exactly right. And that's what they're, uh, that is a big point of emphasis for the NCAA to try to get that you know, not clean, cleaned up, but maybe, you know, not have the penalty be so severe for the defensive player who is doing everything right. And then, you know, has bad luck when the running back lowers his head. So I kind of agreed with Clatt last year that they needed to do some kind of uh, create some kind of layered system. Uh, and this almost is really a layered system because you're raising the bar for targeting, but then you're raising the penalty as well. So I think this is probably a little bit better than, than the flagrant one flagrant two. Hey, John, we wanted to get to, uh, before you let you go, a couple of questions that uh, people had sent in, basically for us, but you'd be better to answer them. So if, if you don't mind. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. All right. Uh, it's good. So we'll start with, uh, we got uh, Scott in Washington. He said, different opinion on Larry Scott if he could find no TV partner for the Pac-12 network. Happy March, Ryan and Dave and John. Uh, John Canzano's, whose mic drop of, we all know Champagne Larry likes to roll large, should be part of your open every week. The truth is, we all know Champagne Larry likes to roll large, right? Like, <laughs> it's funny when we hear our own laughs, because we still laugh when we hear that. Yeah, we should, really, we should really edit that. Edit the laugh? You want to edit the laugh so we can just laugh ourselves? Yeah, because we'll probably just laugh ourselves every time anyway. All right. But he said, uh, so according to that, he said uh, to Gonzano's latest article on the Pac-12 and what private equity, equity would do to the Pac-12 Network's books if they ever got to see them, had an extremely important nugget in there I would like, I would love to hear your thoughts on. According to John, a source inside the network claims Larry did try to find a partner for the network in 2012. No one was interested. And we, we talked about this earlier in the show. Knowing this, does it change either of your opinions on Larry Scott and the path he set uh, the network on Pac-12 fans have known the network has been a crap sandwich for many years, but it, it appears the potential TV partners the Pac-12 was counting, according, uh, knew it as well at the very beginning. For me, this piece of information on one hand gives me slight pause to want to uh, torch and blame uh, for everything, to want to torch and blame for everything. But then I think back to the two instances where Oklahoma and by default Texas were close and ready to join the conference and his lack of foresight slash commitment to get that done puts me back uh, back in the he needs. I don't know what he's talking about. To be Oh, back in the he needs to be replaced camp, uh, especially since he knew he needed something to make his product more desirable, and those two teams would have moved the needle in that direction. Thanks for the year-round podcast. Go dogs, Scott in Washington. All right, Scott. I mean, I think we – I don't know. John, do you have any additional thoughts on that and how it relates to Larry Scott? Well, what we don't know uh, is, you know, was he looking for a partner at 49% or 51%, right? I mean, my impression is that the conference wanted to maintain ownership uh, of its of its network. And if they're going to Discovery, you want the 49%, that's a lot different than if they're going to ESPN or Fox and saying you want 51%. So, you know, I don't know, but, but that's an important – before you can – you know, draw any conclusions, that seems to me like it's a pretty darn important piece piece of the puzzle, and we don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, and I don't know that 
uh, I would necessarily put it on Larry Scott that they didn't get Texas and Oklahoma. I'm not sure what the question, what the reader means by lack of lack of foresight because he, you know, he wanted to get go to 16, and then the next year uh, he was looking into Oklahoma and Oklahoma State and going to 14. So, you know, he it's not expansion is very complicated and you know it involves everyone from the ad to the the football coach and ad to the president and the regents and the trustees and the state politicians and you know it to say larry scott's the reason that they didn't expand i think is uh i would disagree with that yeah all right this is from uh montlake blake um, so this is the, a good USC is good for the PAC 12, which I think we all agree with to some level or another, but he is obviously disputing this. So let's dive in, uh, gents as USC wallows in chaos and in what can charitably be described as mediocrity. We've heard numerous PAC 12 pundits say phrases such as a good USC is good for the PAC 12, but what does that really mean? So I have proposed an exercise for the pod. Let's say USC becomes good and the conference receives a windfall of 120, quote, Larry Scott bucks. These 120 LSBs are then allocated to the teams in the conference based on the perceived value of being graced with the presence of a good USC. (laughs) How would you allocate that value? In other words, how valuable is a good USC to Oregon State or to Utah or to UCLA? Uh, to bound the exercise, let's take off the table future media rights negotiations because that doesn't really mean anything to the bottom line in the short term and is impossible to predict. Specifically, I'm factoring in the following to decide the perceived value of a good USC to each member of the Pac-12, but feel, feel free to consider whatever you deem relevant. And his factors are conference visibility, conference prestige, individual team success, individual team's bottom line, i.e. butts in the seats, and individual team's recruiting success. I'd welcome your thoughts before I give my take. Thanks. Okay. So basically we're, we're to assign value based on uh, USC becoming good to each particular team. Is that everyone's understanding of what, uh, what Montlake Blake is, is saying here? I think so. And then, so there's 120 total dollars that have to be distributed. So yeah. So it's like a fantasy draft. We've got a budget that we have to assign to these teams. Okay. Interesting. Um, he, so he breaks it down basically saying like everyone gets 10 bucks except USC gets a whole bunch and then like UCLA and Washington and Oregon get negative value in Utah is what he's saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Basically he said, well, well, obviously his contention is that it doesn't provide value for most teams. Um, Negative 100 bucks for Washington because he says a good USC means less dudes want to come be OKGs. I'd give a good USC a as a bigger threat to Washington's LSB bottom line because at least at the present time with the current staff, UW is the more proven conference title contender. Oregon minus 50. Uh, Stanford, Cal, and Oregon State all plus 10 bucks. Um, Washington State, zero. Uh, Arizona, 10 bucks. Colorado, 10 bucks. ASU, zero. Utah minus 50. UCLA minus 1,000. <laughs> Because he's saying he's saying LA is basically a zero something, and then USC plus twelve seventy, um, which I guess is whatever the the net result. I don't know. Any thoughts on this, guys? Well, John, uh, we'll, we'll go with you, John. Complicated. Yeah, yeah I, he's made it too complicated. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so it's it's a lot to answer. So this is the thing, guys out there. When you're writing us a question, think: Would we have to diagram this? <laughs> 
if we have to diagram the answer, not great podcasting, not wonderful stuff. So uh, we would definitely have to diagram this. But I would offer one thing, which is when USC is at its peak, it's recruiting, unlike basically anyone else in the conference besides Stanford, is not a zero-sum thing because they draw from a different pool. Uh, USC is the one school outside of Stanford, again, that can very consistently recruit nationally at an elite level um, where they can pull guys from Florida, they can pull guys from Texas, and they can pull guys even from the South on occasion um, that kind of would shock you. I mean, Pete Carroll was doing that with regularity. So um, it isn't – that's kind of why, in addition to USC being just kind of traditionally the the, the bellwether program for the entire Pac-12 – that's why even in a modern understanding of the league where there are different poles of power, um, USC, when they're really good, they recruit nationally. So they're not their being good doesn't necessarily preclude Washington or Oregon or another North team from being good because they might. I mean, 10 guys in every USC class might be elite dudes from out of the region. Um, and that's just not the case really for anybody besides Stanford in the league. Yeah. This guy made it too complicated. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's simple. It is so simple. What would you think of the Big Ten if Ohio State sucked, right? right? What would you think of ACC basketball if North Carolina or Duke sucked? You know, it's easy. Though that's the reason the the Blue Bloods or SEC basketball they could have they could send SEC could send how many teams are in that league? They could send thirteen schools to the NCAA tournament if Kentucky's in the NIT. Everybody's going to think the SEC's down. It's that's why these schools are what they are. SEC's got more national titles than every other team in the Pac-12 combined. It has by far the easiest path to compiling a roster that can win a national title. You know, Washington, Washington, Stanford, Oregon—they're all you know been terrific programs at various points over the last ten or fifteen years. SC has a gigantic advantage over everybody when it comes to getting a roster that can compete against Ohio State or Alabama and win a national title. There's no question about it. When your blue blood is good, the perception nationally with the media, with fans, with recruits is much better. And it's the same in basketball. I mean, UCLA's problems in basketball and Arizona's too. That's affecting the conference uh, significantly on, on that front. It's not, it's not a matter of assigning dollars. Uh, Larry Scott Bucks is just <laughs> – it's just what it is. It's what it's been for 75 years of major college sports. Yeah, and I, my wife's a big Tennessee fan, and they, they were number one in the country at one point in the basketball season. They just beat Kentucky over the weekend. Kentucky's the blue blood. If Kentucky wasn't very good, people wouldn't take Tennessee as seriously as they do. I think, you know, the fact that Tennessee's good and Kentucky's good, it really helps Tennessee, who's, you know, they've, they've kind of come out of nowhere. They won the, the SEC last year, and they've been really good. And, I, and when he gives the, the points, individual teams recruiting success, I think that's a really important one. If you remember in the 90s, and Dave, you remember, I mean, I don't know if you were covering stuff, but the, you know, kids from De La Salle, from Southern California, they were going to... You know, Florida State was, you know, top four every year. They would go to Miami. They'd go to Florida. It was cool to leave California. And I think Pete Carroll put a, 
you know, uh, just a fence around, you know, California. And it made it kind of cool to stay on the West Coast again. I think USC getting a lot of the best players in Southern California, those five stars staying home, that probably made it easier for three and four stars to go to Washington and Oregon and wherever else too, because it was kind of still cool to stay on the West Coast. So I think that certainly helped. We're seeing that talent drain happen now. USC's not getting all those five stars. A lot of them are going out of state, and I don't think that's good for the rest of the conference either. No, it's no, it's not good. The other thing is you can't just, if I'm remembering correctly, he said to kind of cast aside, you know, TV money, but you can't because if SC is good, that impacts the overall value of Pac-12 football brand. And it's important for the conference for SC to get its act together before they sit down at that negotiating table in, you know, four years. I mean, if SC and UCLA are both bad, you know, at that stretch, that's going to affect everybody's bottom line. It also affects the bottom line. I mean, you can't say that bad USC uh, doesn't affect, uh, you know, Oregon state's bottom line in terms of ticket sales, right. For, for the trip to Corvallis every couple of years. I mean, it is, it's a big deal. It, it, It doesn't preclude, Fans kind of get confused. When I say it's important that SC football be good, it's not that it precludes other programs from being good, but it raises it raises up the whole the the collective. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally right. Yeah, good stuff. Um, it's the same in basketball. It's the same in basketball, and the conference is in a bad spot because its blue bloods in both sports are in down cycles. Yeah, I think you'd be talking about Pac-12 basketball a lot differently if UCLA and Arizona were good. Um, I mean, so- I'd be talking about Absolutely. it a lot differently, Ryan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you know, and you know, Washington, you know, they were going to be okay. They're the number one team. Then you lose to Cal, who hadn't won a Pac-12 game yet. USC's got these great recruiting classes, and they just you know hanging around 500. Like there's there's a lot of underachievement, but it everything gets a little bit better if. Arizona or UCLA are good. Just look at the other. I mean, just apply the same logic to the other conferences. And how would you, what would you think about those schools if their blue bloods were not as good? It's just, I mean, the the ACC's equivalent of UC in basketball of UCLA and Arizona is Duke and Carolina. Obviously those programs are on a much different level. Well, at least a different level than Arizona in terms of historic success. But what if, what if, uh, you know, Carolina had fired its coach midseason and uh, Duke was in the middle of this massive NCAA investigation and not going anywhere? I mean, would we really care how good Wake Forest or Virginia were? No. Yeah, it would not. <laughs> it would not matter. Uh, all right. Well, I don't think we want to bore you with any more questions, John. There were some interesting uh, topics uh, and stuff there. Yeah. Hey, uh, w- Whatever you guys want, I'm good. I always enjoy coming on. We're not sure why, but I'm glad you do. <laughs> uh, it's fun. It's fun. And we didn't even we didn't even get into USC football or UCLA basketball. Yeah. That's that's actually what kept it fun, I think. <laughs> we try not to talk basketball, as you know. <laughs> Uh, we're going to, we're going to do like our SC football spring little preview. I mean, you could, if you, you know, you're welcome to hang around for a little bit if you want. 
Um, spring football for you, USC starts uh, tomorrow, and UCLA starts. What day does it start? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. As tomorrow well. also, I think yeah. I wrote the date wrong in that info sheet for you. No, no, you did. Uh, the March sixth, right? Yeah. Whatever. What's tomorrow? Is tomorrow the sixth or the fifth? Uh, tomorrow's the fifth. Oh, you did write it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I do. Way to way to go there. Yep. I just think it's great that USC, uh, you know, they don't need receivers because they're so committed to the running game. <laughs> Look, it's so <laughs> funny looking at the, you know, the, the transfer portal uh, is amazing to have that many wide receivers. You know, they got five guys in the transfer portal uh, from uh, for just from the wide receiver spot. And you're bringing in this receiver friendly uh, offensive with Graham Harrell. I kind of just think they needed to get spring football started, John, because the offseason has been so bad. It's just been bad news after bad news. The only thing good basically was, you know, they, you could cancel out, you know, signing Brew McCoy because he left. You cancel out hiring Cliff Kingsbury because he left. But, you know, getting Graham Harrell, I think, was a big deal. But I think they just needed to get on the practice field because it's just been bad news, bad news, bad news the whole time, John. It has. I, I, don't disagree. It was nice of the NCAA to create the transfer portal for USC football. <laughs> <laughs> it's only one direction, though. It's a it's an out and not an in. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's funny. One of the coolest things that I think twenty four seven sports did was get you know put up the their version of the portal where they you know some of the reporters have access to it or get the information on it and they yeah they yeah put up the this, forward facing view great it's kind of cool to see that you're like oh and then you see like if guys are sitting out or if they're immediately eligible so it's almost like a free agency thing and if you're a fan of you know uh, utah football you're like oh we're short on uh you know receivers or whatever and you go look in the portal you can see a bunch from usc but you look in the portal and find out um yeah here's where we want to we, where can we get from and you can look you can search by these guys are immediately eligible they're you know blah 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 and you know what were they ranked in high school and stuff it's pretty it's kind of cool yeah, I'm a, I'm a big we fan. We didn't really get. Go ahead, go ahead, John. Go ahead, Dave. I was just gonna say I'm a I big just... fan of the redistribution of the resources there. You know, when we get uh, UCLA and USC both, you know, doling out some resources <laughs> to the lesser programs out there, it's really, it's really egalitarian. It's a nice, it's a great system. <laughs> that's that's a good way to look at it. You know, and we didn't get into it, but the transfer it's going to change. They, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of. I don't know if backlash is the right word, but there's a lot of resistance uh, from the coaches and athletic directors. And the NCAA is kind of taking, uh, they're reviewing the, the, the rules governing the transfer portal because it's too much like the, just wild west. And a lot of coaches think it's not, it's not doing the, the players any favors because they have so much, they can be in the portal for so long that they can, they can just decide I'm going to go in and then I'll decide later, you know, while I'm in there in that 14 day window, whatever it is, they can make the decision. Whereas if they, if they cut the amount of time you can be in the portal, you would have to make think harder and make more of your decision before you even take that step, which is, I think what's, what some of the coaches want, because right now it's just too easy. You know, kid decides, Oh, I'm going to be second string string in spring practice. I'm leaving. And that's not necessarily, although they should have freedom of movement, the way it's set up doesn't necessarily, you know, teach them a whole lot in terms of uh, resiliency and decision-making. And I think it's going to end up changing a little bit. 
Yeah, the and it's true. If you're in the portal, my understanding is you you're not allowed to practice with the team anymore. So it's not like you can be in there and just be a free agent, but you can still go back and practice. Like you're you're it's basically like you're off the team. You can come back as long as the, the team has the right to cut you, I guess, or, you know, cut you loose. But if you're in there, my understanding is you can't practice or anything. But you can be you're you're still getting meals and all yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, so, you're still a student and you can um, still go to class and all that stuff. But. Yeah. They need uh they need to tighten it up a little bit and they need to so that the kids you know, have to think hard before they take that first step, right? Right now, you don't have to think very hard. So they're, the, the coaches are kind of pulling there. I've talked to a couple of Pac-12 coaches in the last month or six weeks, and they're just pulling their hair out of the, over this thing. And that's why the NCAA is, is taking a, a much uh, harder look at it. And I think that next, you know, next year's cycle, it will be, it'll be a little bit different. We're not going to see this quite this much chaos yeah a lot of a lot of chaos. The, the rule that i have the biggest problem with i don't know if we talked about this uh with you before john is i hate the early signing period being in late december um it's just too close to the other signing period just kind of took it over i'd rather see something in like august or something you know a little earlier than that where you get early people signing and then everyone else signing in february i don't know if you have any thoughts on the early signing period because impacted coaching searches and hiring and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, there was a, there was some discussion about having an early signing period before the season, right? You couldn't do it September through November. It it would it just wouldn't work. Uh, there was some talk about doing it that early, but I think most people felt like um, that would move everything up to the point where it was just uh, anarchy in terms of the recruiting the process and also you you know a lot of schools want to see how these kids play the you know you want to see how the kids play as a senior yeah so i don't i think that there's enough i don't think that date's going to change i think they're going to keep this window i think a lot of a lot of schools think it's the best the best possible compromise if you've got to have an early window then december is the time to do it Cool. Plus, you got to, you know, for some schools, uh, you know, fall fall grades matter. <laughs> Shockingly, that's true. The the grade stuff. I just hate it when it's like when you're it's a, impacting, you know, hiring, firing coaches. It just seems like it. And you know, you're practicing for your bowl games, and you're and you and it became the 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 full on signing period. It's not just early. If like five or six guys signed, then that'd be fine. But it's like your whole class pretty much is signing then, and it just seems like it's the wrong time to do that. But that's just me. Yeah, I I think that's one that's probably not going to change in the next in the next few years. There's a bunch of stuff that will, but that that one I think is let's put it say like it's the least of their problems. Yeah, yeah, cool. All right, well, John Wilner does an amazing job, like we said, uh, covering the Pac-12, and it's always awesome when he can come on and. Spend a few minutes with us, uh, well, about 50 minutes or so. We appreciate the time, John. It's always fun. Anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Well, that was cool stuff uh, from our buddy John. And I, I always say that, Dave, but I, I know he, he loves coming on the show. He, he does. 
he loves coming on and pantsing the uh, Pac-12 once again. <laughs> um, it's it's great stuff. It's genuine, which you know, it's like I feel like you know he's above us, but he likes being a part of the show. So we'll we'll always welcome him on because he does a well, great. You know, I'm gonna lead you in. What kind of, what kind of underwear do you think uh, do you think the uh, Pac-12 is wearing when John pantses him? <laughs> I know they're probably not wearing Mac Weldon because that's cool stuff. It Mac Weldon. I got to tell you guys about it. it's premium men's essential brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. I just don't picture the Pac-12 wearing those, Dave. I, I just don't no. see it. No, uh, they're not. They're not good enough, I think, to wear Mac Weldon. But you out there, you are. Yes, uh, Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. They want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Not only does Mac Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. They perform well too. Uh, I like doing them uh, for workouts. You can go out on them, go out on dates, just everyday life. Wear them for anything. Uh, I love the workout gear. Uh, I'll, when I go to workout, I love wearing my Mac Weldon stuff. It's the most comfortable set of shirts and underwear I own, uh, which reminds me I got to get some more. But luckily, it's easy to do that. You just go to the Mac Weldon website. It's really easy to navigate, and you can get around and get whatever you want. And for all of our listeners, 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com. If you enter the promo code POC, that's promo code POC at MacWeldon.com at checkout, you're going to get 20% off your first order. So try it out and then uh, tell me and Dave uh, what you think about it. Absolutely. Um, it's it's really good stuff. So good stuff. Good read, Ryan. Hey, thanks, Dave. It was a good lead in there. Um, I set you up. I, I moved it along. That's that's our partnership. That's that how is we our do. strategic that's our strategic partnership here at the Podcast of Champions. Yeah, perfect stuff. Um, well, Dave, we have to preview a couple of teams. Uh, do do wanna, we? Do we really? Do you want to start with the team that you cover or the team that I cover? Let's do the team I cover. Why not? Well, we're going to go first with UCLA Bruins. Yep. That's the football team. <laughs> um, UCLA kicks off spring practice tomorrow. Um, when you're listening to this, it might actually be today, uh, Tuesday and look at me traveling through time. Um, they're, uh, they're starting spring ball. Uh, it's the second spring ball of the chip Kelly era. Um, a little bit of a different, uh, feel to the team heading into spring, uh, this year, but also some of the same questions from last year. Uh, one of them, uh, being offensive line. That might be one of the trickiest ones because it's basically the same deal as last year. Um, they had uh, about, I think, eight guys available last year who were scholarship linemen. This year, I think it's going to be seven. Um, so it's going to be a walk-on uh, centric party uh, in the two deep. Um, but they do have some walk-ons who actually were pretty decent last year, and it'll be a it'll be an interesting little insight into um, the walk-on program that Chip Kelly is trying to build at UCLA because that's been kind of a, a low-key thing that they're trying to do. Um, it'll also be. I mean, it's going to be Dorian Thompson Robinson's show. And last spring, I mean, it was Devon Modster who was actually taking most of the first string reps. So that'll be different. Uh, Thompson Robinson wasn't in until fall last year. Um, and then even then he was competing with Wilton Spate and they split time all year. But I mean, I, there there isn't really another guy on the roster who I, I can see really competing with Thompson Robinson this spring. So he's probably going to get the vast majority of first string reps. And then it'll be a question whether they'll pursue a transfer um uh, after spring um but as for as of now it's it's thompson robinson's show um joshua kelly returns at running back um so that position is more or less solidified 
Uh, Theo Howard returns at wide receiver, number one outside receiver from last year. But obviously they have to replace Caleb Wilson, who was uh, very good at the NFL Combine this week. Um, but uh, they'll have to replace him. But Devin Asiasi, who was his understudy last year, is arguably uh, just as talented. Um, he was a heralded prospect, went to Michigan, transferred to UCLA, um, played some last year um, as Wilson's backup um, and was pretty good. So the offense uh, ended last year in pretty good shape. The last few games of the year, um, I would anticipate it being uh, basically the, the major limiting factor being um, what they can get done on the offensive line. Uh, Andre James uh, moved on. He was, I think everyone was penciling him in as uh, staying at UCLA for this year. And he, he went into the NFL draft and it doesn't, actually look good for him, I think, at this point to even get drafted. Uh, he didn't have a great combine. But losing him um, just kind of puts the entire offensive line in flux. Um, you know, you, I think a lot of UCLA people felt pretty good about the offensive line at the end of last year. Without him at left tackle anchoring that, I mean, they're going to have probably a revolving door at left tackle this spring. And then um, I think they're probably going to hope that true freshman Sean Ryan, when he arrives in August, arrives super ready to slot in and play immediately. Um and then defensively, um, UCLA's got a lot of returning depth at defensive line and at linebacker. Uh, have to replace Darius Pickett at um, at safety. Uh, but all together, they're not really replacing a ton uh, at really any level of the defense. It should be a, an experienced group. Uh, the It's kind of like any year when, they, when a team suffers a ton of injuries in a position group, which UCLA did at linebacker last year. What that means for the next year is that you've got a lot of guys who have experience. Um, so it's a very experienced linebacker core. Um, and I think the defense will be just generally a, a cut above where it was last year. Um, again, that's barring injuries. But guys to keep in mind, Chris Barnes, at linebacker, um, Antonio Maffi at uh, nose tackle was a big uh, surprise last year. Uh, big actually he was like 390 pounds uh, but he could actually move pretty well at nose tackle and he's apparently cut weight uh gotten a little bit more athleticism in the offseason so um that's all good that's my ramble preview on ucla you have any questions out there for me ryan yeah well the uh what would you say the, what's the schedule like Cause it says march 5th to april 20th is it like oh, you with the damn logistics i like ryan. it i always want the logistics uh, all right so they're like gonna go two march weeks 5th. off or something or yeah they're gonna go fifth through the 16th and then it's basically the end of the quarter and finals um and so they'll kick off again april 2nd so it's essentially i don't know two full weeks plus a little bit off um, and then they'll go straight from the second to the 20th. Um, so most of the, the balance of uh, spring ball will be in April, but they're getting six practices in, in March. Gotcha. The, what, uh, for me, Caleb Wilson just seemed like a guy, he wasn't, he wasn't the man in every game, but there was like, usually like three or four games a year, right. Where he was just like, just took over. Um, it, is Devin, Devin Asiasi kind of have, does he have some of that in him or is this like, you know, is he going to be more of a steady producer, would you say? So I think Asiasi is more of a balanced tight end. Um, he, he uh, The big thing, and I think Wilson improved as a blocker last year, but the big thing with Asiasi is that everyone inside the program talked about him as a much better blocker than Wilson. So I think you might see, and UCLA is a run-heavy offense, or at least it appeared that way, especially towards the end of last year when they discovered Joshua Kelly 
and the good combination they had in, inside with him and, and the, uh, and the offensive line play. Um, so I, I think he might actually be a slightly better fit for what UCLA is prioritizing offensively. I don't know that he's going to be as a dynamic, a pass catcher. Um, I think Wilson ended up, uh, it was, I think it was like 60 catches and almost a thousand yards last year. And I don't see Asiasi doing that. I think he could, if he was the featured part of the offense. Um, but I don't think he's just going to sneeze his way into 120 yards a game. Like it seemed Wilson was doing at different points last year. Um, so yeah, I would say he's going to be maybe more of a, I think he'll boost his, his, uh, totals from last year. I think he was like something like a 10 catch guy. I think he'll probably be somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 40, um, and probably put up 500 or 600 yards, but not, not on the level of Wilson. I don't think he's going to be that featured a player as, as Wilson was last year. I mean, that that's fine. That's good production. Just Wilson could have like a 200 yard game, you know, and just really just go bananas. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing last year, it seemed like when Chip Kelly came in, and you could even argue he did this with this recruiting class, like doing things his way, there was you're going to ruffle a lot of feathers. You you know, a lot of the UCLA fans scratching their heads. Do you think it's going to be a little bit more like okay, that's that's why you did all that weird stuff last year? It's going to make sense this year. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, so I think. Uh, the way the way I stand on last year is um, completely understand what he was doing, breaking the whole thing down to build it up. Um, they started with a really vanilla. Um, basically, they started really vanilla on both sides of the ball, and then the offense kind of found its legs a little bit around midseason. Um, some of that was Boss Tagaloa showing up at center. Um, I think he stabilized the offensive line to an extent, and that in turn stabilized the offense. Um, and allowed them to build a running game. Um, My whole thing on last year is I don't know if that was, I I still don't know if that was necessary, um, if they needed to be a three and nine team, because the talent was there to be better um, than three and nine, and to probably be a little bit more competitive at the beginning of the year. But by the end of the year, the offense was in pretty good shape. Um, You know, it beat USC. It was very competitive against Stanford. Um, and looked the part, like looked like an offense. Okay. This is, this is going to be trouble for other teams to deal with. Um, and they were doing it with not a whole lot of guys. Um, now going into this year, I don't think if if it goes the same way as last year, where it's a very slow start to the season, then I think people are going to be a little bit concerned, but I think everyone with the play on the fields, uh, and I'm speaking for the fan base here. With the play on the field towards the end of last year, I think everyone is feeling pretty good about Chip Kelly, the the on-field football coach. As we've talked about extensively on the podcast over the last few months, I think there's more questions about uh, Kelly and his recruiting strategy. And, you know, if we're talking about um, UCLA having talent deficiencies, maybe at certain levels of the defense and maybe some talent deficiencies at certain skill spots, well, who's coming in to replace those guys? Who's coming in to fill those spots? And I think that's more... Where you're looking for questions around the program right now, I think a lot of it, maybe 80, 90 percent of it is centered more around off the field stuff than necessarily what schemes they're running and how they're doing it, because it started to look good by the end of last year. Okay, it's not not good to be be three and nine. But when you're looking back three and nine, if you go five and seven, that's an improvement. That's obviously I don't think that's an acceptable improvement for UCLA fans. What what's reasonable turnaround from three and nine for UCLA this year. You got to take schedule into account and it's a 
tough, tough schedule. Um, I don't think it's quite as brutal as it was last year, but it's not great. I mean, you're talking about they have to do, let me pull it up. Um, they have to do road trip to Cincinnati. Then they get San Diego State, which is pretty much consistently good, um, a consistently good Mountain West team. And then they have to take on Oklahoma at the Rose Bowl. And that's an Oklahoma team that, yes, they have to replace Kyler Murray, but they didn't really have any trouble replacing Baker Mayfield <laughs> last year. Um, so road trip to Cincinnati, that's a Cincinnati team that will be improved over the team that was undefeated for a long stretch of last year. San Diego State, which is a good non-conference uh, mid-major. Um, Oklahoma, which might again be a top six team next year. Um, that's, that's a murderer's row of, uh, non-conference games. Um, and I don't know how UCLA is going to come out of that. I think one and two probably is the most likely scenario. I think they're going to be dogs to Cincinnati and dogs to Oklahoma and probably favored over San Diego state. Uh, two and one would be an absolute win. Um, that's the point where you start thinking about what bowl game UCLA is going to go to. Um, but I, I, one and two, probably most likely. And then conference, uh, play. It's not ideal. Um, it's, it's not bad. They do get the right split. Um, it's Oregon state instead of Oregon. So that helps, but Washington state on the road, it's in September. So that helps. Um, but I, basically what I'm saying is you have to be realistic about it. Um, I think they will be better this year. I think the defense will be a lot better. I think the offense won't take as long to get going this year. Um, but you have to take the schedule into account. Even if they went like five and four in conference, I'm not having them more than one and two in non-conference. I think six and six is what would get everyone like, okay, that's real improvement. You're getting to a bowl game. Um, but to get it to where everyone's happy, I mean, it's gotta be like eight and four. And I think to really jumpstart recruiting, because it's one thing to go three and nine your first year, because as we've talked about on this show, when you're recruiting for your first cycle, you're recruiting for the future anyway. You're not recruiting based on anything going on on the field. Um, and so you can kind of see recruiting results that are different from the play on the field. Like going three and nine your first year isn't that big of a deal if you're recruiting your butts off. But when you put together two mediocre seasons in a row, then uh, recruits are a little bit warier, a little bit more um, nervous about signing on with you. So I think it's imperative they have a good season this year. Um, I just, it's hard to get to eight and four looking at this schedule um, just because of the non-conference. Um, I, I think they can do it, but it's it's going to be a tough road. Yeah. Oh, makes sense. All right. Uh, do you want to, should we move on? Or yeah, you want to move more, on? More. Uh, no, people hear about USC and UCLA from us all the time. So I feel, like I know I feel like we're just saying the same things over and over yeah. again, but right. give us your spiel on USC. All right. It is USC Trojan. All right. So a lot of bad news. Like we talked about with John Wilner during this off season. Uh, like you said, try to, you know, try to make a home run hire at your offensive coordinator with Cliff Kingsbury. He leaves after a month. They get kind of Cliff Kingsbury light with Graham Harrell who I was impressed with uh, going his open, his press conference where he came in and talked about not a lot of experience, but really more experience as an offensive coordinator, three years at North Texas than USC's typically hired. They've promoted guys to become offensive coordinators for the first time. So he does have some experience. He's just not been a, a full-time assistant coach in college all that long. So curious to see what he ends up doing. It'll be a different offense than Mike Leach. They'll run the ball a little bit more. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, what the how different the offensive line is going to look. How, not sure how 
tight ends will be utilized. So we're going to try to find all that stuff out. Spring ball starts uh, tomorrow, March 5th. It goes through April 13th. Their spring game is April 6th. It's not the last uh, practice, like the Saturday before the last one. And because the Coliseum is still under renovation, they're just doing it on campus at the track field at uh, Cromwell Field. So it won't be that many people coming out. It's not like a real spring game. Um, but that, that's kind of what they did last year. They, they'll probably go back to the Coliseum once the renovations are over for uh, 2020. But for this year, it'll just be uh, on campus. So they'll wrap it up at six weeks, three practices a week, and they take the second week off. They take off for spring break. Um, cool. Yeah. Logistics. People like that. Logistics. Stuff. You love logistics. I just like to, you know, I don't think I'm going to watch all the spring games because I don't get the Pac-12 network right now. I don't I, think you even watched the one that already happened. No, I did not because I, well, I don't have the network now. So I have to like. No, I mean, we, if this were last year, we would have treated the people to like 25 minutes about your impressions of the spring game. But yeah. this year, we just can't do it. Because <laughs> I didn't watch it this time. It's unfortunate. We'll see. I might go back and, and look at them and stuff. Um, We did get a tweet. Someone was mad. Like they weren't showing the spring game. They were showing like. It's like Arizona State. They weren't showing. So, so we got it. We got a tweet from your burner account. Okay, it's not my burner account. No, it was. What, what, what was it? What, do you do you have the tweet up there? What it was? No, I don't have the tweet up here. I oh. don't even know what you're talking about. It was someone you're tweeted. Somebody's complaining about the spring game not being on. No, that it wasn't on. Like it wasn't on one of the networks. They showed like women's water polo replay or something. Okay, I've got, of it. A, I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. This is from uh, JMW on 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 Twitter. It's an ASU fan. You can't make this up. Pac-12 Network duplicates the Washington State-Stanford basketball game instead of the ASU spring game on the Pac-12 alternate channel. Uh, Boo. Um, God, I fully support that. Nobody should watch spring games. <laughs> it helped me last year. That's how I found out about LaVisca Chenault, you know? Uh, you know, what... I found, about LaVis- <laughs> uh, found out about LaVisca Chenault when he was blowing up on the field. Right. He looked awesome. It was immediate. But I knew it in April, and you found out. But did you? Did you? <laughs> yes, we talked about it. We'll have to go back and play it. I can't um, remember this. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Okay. So recruiting-wise, this was the lowest-ranked class for USC in the internet era. They were 20th in the country, third in the Pac-12. They've never been outside of the top two. They've only were second like three times. So different kind of vibe. They've had, they had more three-stars than they've ever signed. Uh, obviously, with the five and seven season and all the turmoil, Clay Helton being on the hot seat. He ended up switching up coaches, but just not enough. He About half his staff was turned over, five different coaches. Um, eh, you know, I think some deficiencies there. They have a, a basically a rookie wide receiver coach, Kerry Colbert, who coached tight ends last year, and the tight ends were awful. So this is his first year coaching wide receivers. Usually in this kind of an offense, you have two wide receiver coaches. USC only has one, and he's basically new. So I think that could certainly uh, bite them in the butt a little bit later on. Uh, they also promoted Joe DeForest to be an outside linebacker coach. He was an analyst for special teams. He hasn't coached linebackers in like 20 years. I don't know what they're doing there. So they made some good moves, but then they just made some – there's a lot of familiar, like comfortable moves. And I get when coaches are trying to put a staff together, you have to – it's like you're living with these guys, it's like having roommates, you know, because you spend so much time with them. But sometimes you just have to get out of your comfort zone. Clay Hilton started to, but mostly you kind of go back to – the norm is to just be comfortable. They they needed a new strength and conditioning coach. They lost Ivan Lewis up to uh, the Seattle Seahawks. So they end up bringing back Aaron Osmus, who was with them, I don't know, eight years ago or so, like the Lane Kiffin era. He wasn't coaching in college. He was doing some sort of performance program or something. Uh, so USC fans aren't happy about that. It's another sort of 
uh, like stage performance, retread, like put, retread. Put, putting on productions of like Annie. No, like, <laughs> yes, he's at the Hermosa Playhouse over here nearby. I no. don't know. Does he have a good voice? What's his deal? I, you know, he was, he was a uh, track. He played, he ran track at Tennessee. Okay. I don't know about his voice. Um, but you know, so he, he wouldn't be the daddy Warbucks part. I don't No, He, he kind of looks like that. Yeah. Maybe. With, okay. Yeah. Uh, but Most no, strength coaches actually do look like daddy Warbucks. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, he's a bald guy. It's, um, I would say it's another USC fans are saying another retread, like just someone a familiar name again. So he was on the same staff with, with uh, Clay Helton before. Um, so we'll see what that happens, but they, they hadn't had a strength coach for like six weeks. So they, they finally got one again. Um, they, they, they had an interim one and he ended up leaving for Kansas less miles, hired him away. So there weren't really many people left running the strength program. So now they got somebody back in there. Isn't that better than Ivan Lewis anyway, though, if you don't have anybody, <laughs> that's what some people say. Pete Carroll seems to be raving about him up there. I don't know. It's one of those things. It's like switching out your gardener, you know, like if you have like, you know, people that trim your trees or cut your lawn, like if you, you get the same one over and over again, it just kind of gets lazy. And then you just get a new one and everything looks better. I think sometimes you just have to switch your, you know, what an absolute it. insight. What an insight into like, Ryan Abraham do you like talking that? about gardeners, getting new gardeners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's something everyone out there can identify with. Right. Well, we're at a, we're at a townhome complex and you, you have to have a gardener for the whole group. You know? I get it. No, I'm with you. Hey, I, get I grew it. up mowing my lawn, you know, that's what we used to do, but that, now we don't do that stuff anymore. Um, so probably <laughs> biggest losses, Porter Gustin, Cameron Smith, Marvell Tell, Iman Marshall, all on the defensive side of the ball. A lot of veterans are gone. They were all at the NFL Combine. Some offensive linemen too, Chuma Doga, Toa Lobendon. But I think on the offensive side, most everyone's back. Like all the receivers are back. Uh, you know, most of the running backs are back. It's, you know, they didn't get much production out of the tight ends, but we'll see. Um, going through the quarterbacks are back. You know, there's a bunch of young guys. Um, I think the offensive side talent is there. Uh, the offensive line, maybe not as talented as the last couple of years. They should be better though, that with uh, Tim Drevno coaching instead of Neil Calloway, but really on the defensive side of the ball is where some of the big name production players are gone, especially Porter Gustin. He was leading the PAC 12 in sacks like a month after he went out with an injury. So he, I mean, he was just producing from that spot and they never really found anyone to kind of fill his shoes. So they have, I think they have a lot of young talent on the front seven of the defense. They'll mix some guys in and out. There's really going to be some deficiencies in the secondary, especially in the spring. It's funny. They got this, you know, air raid sort of offense. You want to have four wide receivers. You might have like four or five healthy wide receivers in the spring and like four or five healthy you know, defensive backs in the spring. So depending on, there's some guys coming back from surgery. We'll see if they're able to play. Um, but you might have like a five on five, like one-on-one -on -one situation, Dave, where there's just, there's like not enough to run two different offenses if you want to run three or four wide receivers at a time. So that that's kind of a weird spot for them to be in. Yeah, it's important to have wide receivers, I think, in an air raid. Um, <laughs> I think that's one of those key positions. Um, yeah. Who's 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 going to be thrown on the ball? Is it going to be the best quarterback on uh, the roster? Or is it going to be JT Daniels again because Clay Helton made promises to him? Yeah, well, we asked Graham Harrell about that. We actually actually Clay Helton too uh, on signing day. So they're saying all the positions are open. Uh, you know, when you have a new offensive coordinator coming in, I think coming out of the season before uh, Clay Helton made all the firings and, and the switches and stuff, he talked about. It's going to be great to see JT Daniels in the spring when it's not a competitive situation and he's just the the starter, you know. So that didn't make USC fans. There's a lot of USC fans that would rather see like a Jack Sears play instead of him. 
Um, but you know, now they've said it's going to be wide open. We'll watch practice. You know, is JT Daniels getting all the first team reps? Then it's probably his his job to lose. Um, or it's his job no matter what. He was just better though in practice. Now he was better practicing the crappy offense, whatever they were running, the gumbo kind of stuff. Maybe Jack Sears is going to do a better job in practice with this newer scheme that's supposed to be simpler. Uh, it's supposed to be, you know, it's going to just move faster and he doesn't want the quarterbacks to have to think all the time, just go out there and play. We'll see. Maybe that Jack Sears or Matt Fink uh, kind of adapt to that and they they perform better. But those guys were the only two guys in the spring last year and it just didn't look good at all. So JG Daniels comes in and the bar wasn't very high and he exceeded it. So he was just better. So I think Dave, I, my, my gut says it's still going to be JT Daniels. But it should be an open competition. It's just going to be can Jack Sears or Matt Fink actually perform well in practice because they really didn't last year. Have you heard anything about um, any of the quarterbacks or any of the receivers? Um, I I know we we all because we're outsiders and we're thinking about an air raid and we're thinking oh wow they're going to put up numbers. But I know for some of these guys, and it's an old mindset because I think the NFL is changing a little bit that it's not a pro style offense that it's not going to get you ready for the pros. Do you know if that's entered anyone's minds, either in the running back room, receiver room, or or in the quarterback room, that maybe this, maybe they aren't super stoked about Graham Harrell being hired? You know, I haven't heard that yet. We haven't really got to talk uh, to the players. Now, Graham Harrell was, uh, he was just gushing over the running backs room, and he made it. You know, he made it a point. You look at the production they've had; they run the ball a lot more than like what Mike Leach does, and I think Cliff Kingsbury made a point of that too. Um, where they're just like their their version of this air raid isn't throwing the ball seventy percent of the time. He was about fifty fifty. I think it was like fifty two forty eight when he was at North Texas. So they certainly run the ball uh, a little bit more. Now some of that's the quarterback running in too. It's not just you know straight off. But so I, I think there, and there's only really three scholarship running backs right now. I think those guys are going to be pretty happy this spring. The receivers should be happy because. I mean, they're going to be, they, they need to be schemed open a little bit. The receivers just had to make crazy plays all the time, uh, getting balls thrown to them in double coverage. Hopefully, you know, I think they're going to hope that Graham Harrell will be able to find out what, you know, give them routes to run and the scheme that will allow them to be, you know, four guys go out in a pattern and one or two of them are open as opposed to everybody's covered. That's kind of what was happening last year. So I think those guys are pretty happy. Got to check with the offensive line because that's going to be different too. I think the splits are going to be a little bit wider. I don't think it's going to hurt them as far as uh, NFL, you know, draft status. And you know, for the quarterbacks, we're seeing guys from from offenses like that excel. Uh, Kyler Murray might be the number one overall pick. You saw Baker Mayfield, his success. So I, you know, I think some of that stigma is probably gone. But I haven't really heard specifically if anyone's like, you know, if some of the receivers transferred out because of that. I I haven't heard that. I, I kind of doubt that would be the case. Yeah, I would too. Um, okay, so looking at the schedule, first part of the question, what's the record that gets uh, Clay Helton to keep his job? I mean, that's a it's a really good question. And my so my gut has said to has told me, I've talk, hey gut, what do you say? I feel like last year it was just like Lin Swan was like, I don't care what happens, I'm not firing him. Like he just didn't want to do it. Because he couldn't finish much worse uh than what what USC did. I mean, they lost five of their last six. Um, they got outscored 45 to 10 in the second half of the last three games. And and they were winning each of those games at halftime. I mean, it's crazy. The kind of scoring runs that they allowed, they allowed 
34 nothing to Texas, 34 nothing to to Utah. I mean, yeah, it's almost like they've got a they've they're a poorly coached team. Yes. Almost. And yeah. so my gut was that he just wasn't going to fire him no matter what. And then you look at this year, I feel it's going to be different. I feel like they could go 9 and 3 and like win the south and like get blown out by Washington in the title game or something and he could still get fired. Like I feel like that's on the table. It's hard to say there's like a threshold because if you would have said five and seven last year, he said, yeah, definitely he'd be fired. And he wasn't. Um, but I feel like, you know, th- there's there's certainly a higher ceiling, I mean, a higher bar for success. Um, it doesn't mean he's going to, you know, he could go eight and four and like finish second or third in the Pac-12 South and still retain his job just because that's what Lin Swan wants to do. I mean, he's an inexperienced well, athletic director. But I feel like let's if they get don't squishy, win- let's oh, Let's get squishier with it then. Why don't we say this? Okay. Um, what's, what's the record he would have to achieve to get back in the good graces of the majority of the fan base? I kind of think he'd have to win the PAC 12 again. Um, like and, 10 and two, 11 and one, win the PAC 12 and compete for a playoff. Yeah. I think like 10 and two would, people would feel better because the schedule, like you said, with UCLA, the schedule's really tough in the beginning. Their first six games, um, they're playing on the road at BYU. They got Fresno state who UCLA played last year at home. They won 12 games last year. They're on the road against Washington and Notre Dame. Um, I mean, their first six games, if you finish four and two, that's that's I think that would be pretty good. Um, so even like a nine and three, you, but you win the Pac-12 or something, I think they would feel pretty good just because the schedule is tough in the beginning. Um, but they they got to look good in the, the the marquee games. If you get blown out by Notre Dame again or you know, lose to a two and eight UCLA squad, like that, none of that stuff is going to help. It's like you got to get that kind of record, but look pretty good doing it too. And I think if they look, you know, if they look like they're better, then it might win out some of the fans, but the fans, as you know, just they're pretty much off the bandwagon right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in that light, so uh potential 10 and two at minimum, probably 10 and two win the PAC 12. What will you need to see out of this spring to have you pretty convinced that they have a very good shot of doing that? I think you got to, I think the defense is going to have to show like they, they were really good at sacking the quarterback and getting after the quarterback in 2017. That just went away last year, especially if Port Augustine wasn't in there. I think they have to use the entire, uh, all the talent they have and not just kind of play 12 or 13 guys. Cause they have a lot of talent up front. I think mixing around and, and trying different guys out, getting production from different players. Uh, I think if you see that in the spring, I think you'll feel pretty good. Um, it's going to be hard to see that, though, in the secondary. You're going to have to wait till the fall for that. But the offense, just you have to have to look at it and go, wow, okay. The the amount of talent USC had on the team last year to be 90th in the country in scoring is ridiculous. Like, that should have not – they were tied with Oregon State as far as points per game. That's just not – that should not happen. With the, the They have five stars all over the place. So you want to look at the – if you look at the offense and go, okay, that is just so much better. That makes so much more sense then you could see a, a, a record like that, Dave, be more realistic. Right on. All right. Cool. Well, should 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 we move on past our, our spring previews? I think so. We gotta we still have a few questions left, right? We do. We do. Um should we start with Sean? Yeah, I think we'll go there. 2019 out of conference schedules. Guys, what are the upcoming out of conference games next season that conference teams quote have to win? Is the Auburn game the most important or are the Notre Dame games for SC and Stanford more important? No offense, but I'm not including the Oklahoma game for UCLA because I don't see a route to winning the game for them. Sean from Ohio. 
Hmm. Okay, so wow, I wish I had an encyclopedic knowledge of the different teams. So it's it's uh, Oregon Auburn, right? Like that's a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, because Washington and Auburn, they're not doing that one again. Um, I think USC Fresno State and probably BYU. Probably the BYU games for anybody, like the early on ones. Notre Dame's are later, so I don't know if that matters as much. To me, it's the early. Like you got to start off on a good foot, so. I don't, you know, I don't know everyone who's everyone's playing, uh, but even for UCLA, like you go on the road and lose to Cincinnati, and you know you lose to San Diego State, and you, you can't like UCLA can't start off zero and three like that, that. That's not good for anybody. That's that's not you know you got to you know if you can if UCLA can go two and one that'd be awesome. That's probably hard to do, but that I think that's important. Just even it doesn't have to be the very top teams too, but. You, the, the difference between UCLA going like 0-3, 1-2 and and versus 2-1, and I think it could have significant dividends for the Pac-12. Well, yeah, and also I would say no marquee game is actually ever a must-win. The must-wins are like Washington, Eastern Washington. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, that's, a, that's a must-win. Oh, that's a must-win. And that's one that you actually have to take seriously. Like, sure, Washington isn't Washington State and doesn't lose those with regularity. But at the same time, Eastern Washington's a good damn program. That's a weird, awful game. First, don't ever schedule that. And second, uh, yeah, that's a must win. Um, it's those kinds of games that are the must wins. And I think UCLA Cincinnati is actually in that boat or closer to it than even Auburn, Oregon. I mean, if, if Oregon plays a close game with Auburn and they're 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 close enough, I mean, I don't think that's I don't even think that's this positive for them making the playoff. Like if they then went eleven and one, which I don't anticipate Oregon doing, but if they lose to Auburn and go eleven and one and then win the Pac-12 title game, they're more than likely making the playoffs. Yeah. Um, so I don't think those marquee games are ever. It's just the the accumulation of all of these results can spark a bad narrative. And also, don't lose any really dumb ones. Don't lose to Eastern Washington if you're if you're Washington. Uh, don't lose to who's USC got? Who's their less the their their least quality opponent? They got Fresno State at BYU and at Notre Dame. So they're. USC, don't lose to BYU. Like, yeah. don't do that. Um, um, we got so a couple big ones. Arizona State's playing Michigan State. Um, so that should be that's. I think that's on the road, right? At Michigan State. Yeah, that uh, should be at Michigan. Yeah, it's at Michigan State on uh, September fourteenth. So, but don't lose to like Kent State then. or Sac State, right? Like, they don't, don't yeah, do that. Don't don't it just don't have any really awful results, and I think that'll be a, a cut above um, Pac twelve of years past. Yeah, Arizona has Texas Tech. That's kind of interesting. That'll be um, fun. Yeah, but they play like Northern Arizona and Hawaii, you know. Um, don't lose those. <laughs> yeah, don't lose dumb games. Uh, Utah's got BYU. North, yeah, the, Utah doesn't really have anybody. Northern Illinois and and Idaho State. Um, I think Colorado. What have they got? Uh, Colorado State, Nebraska. So Colorado went on the road and beat Nebraska last year. And they got Air Force. So that's an in-stater kind of thing. So that's some interesting ones in the South. Do you, do you know any other ones in the North with some, I'm pulling them up right now for you, Ryan. Stanford has Northwestern logistics. Um, they have to go at UC UCF. That's not fun. No, that's not great. Um, that's, that's probably as close to a marquee must win as possible because that's a group of five great team, but that's just bad scheduling. Yeah. Um, Cal goes yeah. to Ole Miss. That's a good one. Yeah, that'll be a good game. Um, I don't care uh, about. 
I mean, I care about Oregon State in like a personal level, but I don't care who they're playing this year because, I mean, let's be honest. What if they beat they, Oklahoma State? Oklahoma State. Yeah. They've got Oklahoma State. I mean, if they win that one, that's great. Huge. But it's not by any definition of must win. Right. It's just a nice to win. Does Washington State All marquee games are nice to wins. That's yeah. what marquee games are. Washington State uh, goes on the road against Houston, so that's that's significant, you know. I would put that closer again to a must-win category because it's against a group of five team. Yeah. You can't you can't be losing those games um, to to the good group of fives because it's just tough scheduling, but also it just it, it reinforces this narrative that the Pac-12 is essentially a group of five conference. Yeah, Washington's interesting because they don't you know they had the big one last year with Auburn. Like their toughest, they go on the road against BYU. They play Hawaii and Eastern Washington. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not a murderer's row. But uh, that makes all three of those absolute must wins. Yeah. Because if you lose any one of those, then you've got a bad loss. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for that question. Uh, we got stuff from Bernie, Bernie O. Uh, so he has, he has one for me, one for you. Uh, for Ryan, I've never seen such a fuss made over the hiring of an assistant coach as I have with USC's hiring of an offensive coordinator. You haven't seen people bungle it that much, uh, Bernie. Oh, that's why. Uh, it is like they view him as a savior for the football program, because they do. Uh, then, when, <laughs> then, when he, then, when he is, then when he is finally meets with the press, the head coach is even there to introduce him, which I find was very odd. Yeah, we did get to have a press conference with him, but he, the, uh, Clay Helton wasn't there. So it was it was pretty much informal in like a little sports me, sports information meeting room. I'm not sure why they did that, but... Whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was a little bit weird, but um, it's like they know the more exposure Helton gets, the more it hurts the program. That's actually an interesting point because usually Clay Helton speaks after every practice, Dave. They're only having him speak once a week now. Um, so he'll only speak at like five or six practices. He'll, I think he's going to do the first one tomorrow and then every Saturday he's going to speak. Um, and I, that's totally my, I mean, there was a, a there was a tweet that happened because uh, he's pretty much toxic with USC fans. There was some coaching seminar going on, and he and Clay Helton was there. There was some like high school coach who took a picture of Clay Helton presenting, and the slide said something like USC football culture, and he tweeted this out. And the guy, the coach, has like fifty followers or something. But someone retweeted, it and I saw it, and I just retweeted it. Like, hey, we're listening to Clay Helton speak about USC's football culture. And all the comments were from USC fans, all these negative things like, what culture, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, as soon as you put Clay Helton out there, the fans just completely turn on him. And that poor high school coach who was happy to be, you know, hearing from the, the head football coach at USC ended up deleting that tweet because there was just all negative comments and stuff on it. It's, it's, it's really weird, Dave, that th it's almost like they have to limit the exposure of the head coach because they know the fan base isn't happy with him. Yeah, well, I think that's um, fair, and I think it's why they should have fired him last offseason. Yeah. And also, um, I mean, this will give him less opportunity to um, profess his that that a particular player is the love of his life. True. Um, because Toa Lobendon's gone now, right? He's gone. No more love. Yeah, no more so he's got to find a new love of his life um, among this group. And it's, it, it sounded like Brew McCoy had the inside track, but he moved on. So that would you know, be a long a, distance relationship. Yes. Yeah. And so he's got to suss that out and he's got to get it out there in the open, but I mean, maybe not giving him so many opportunities to uh, sound really, really weird in public would probably be <laughs> ideal anyway. <laughs> he said, now for my question, watching the Trojans last year, I never saw USC coaching adjustments made at halftime. 
because uh, it never happened. Even Bruce Feldman mm-hmm. touched on it when he subbed for you, Ryan, on your Tunnel Vision podcast. He talked about how in the UCLA game they were absolutely none. So my question is, Ryan, how do you see the staff making game time adjustments? Will Helton make the call, or will it be the coordinators making the call? I can't even I can't envision Helton not being involved as his job is on the line here, and he is in fact the head coach. And if he is, I think USC will flounder again. Your thoughts? So he said, uh, Bernie O, that he's going to try to be more of a CEO, work on like team discipline, penalties, things like that. He's always let Clancy Pendergast just run the defense. And from what he's saying, he's going to let Graham Harrell run the offense. I'm not 100% convinced that that's going to be the case. Um, I think that's what was happening to the offense before. Not that that was a great scheme anyway, but there was just too many cooks in the kitchen. I think they'll be okay if they let Graham Harrell run things. If they don't, then I think you're going to see a lot more of the same. But it's I know it's Helton's job to lose, but I think he's now trying to allow his assistant coaches to just do their job and he's going to try to oversee things. Um, that's, that's what the plan is, but you know, that's the plans only last so long until you get punched in the mouth and you see, you know, how you react to that. So we'll, we'll see, but that's what the plan is for now. Yeah. Uh, okay. for David, I haven't been a long time member on this site. I have read and watched your enthusiasm for UCLA football and basketball slowly wane. It's, you know, is this interesting? So he's a UCLA fan. He's a subscriber to bro. And he was watching like Tunnel Vision. That's, is that I, I should feel good that's, about that. That's that's some real commitment. There, I Bernie. should feel good about that. Thanks, Bernie. Yeah. Um, it might just be me, but it seems you can't discuss either without some sarcasm or disdain creeping in. Take, for instance, Ryan. His caring about what happens with the USC program is so obvious. Yours, not so much. So my question is, Wow, Dave, your assessment of things, Bernie, <laughs> is so off. But anyway, continue. So my question is... David, am I off base here? Thanks, guys. I love the podcast from Bernie. Oh, oh, God. You should hear the things Ryan says off the record about his beloved USC I say it on the record. Like, I, I know. God, you're <laughs> a crank. Um, I'm, I'm, so I am naturally probably a little bit more caustic a person than Ryan is, so that probably uh, makes – I'm much more inclined to take the, like, the, the worst possible way of phrasing something I'm more likely to take that than Ryan, but I think we both have similar views about the programs we cover. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, I'm not going to say like I'm a purely objective person. We've had that conversation on this podcast before. I am not, and I think it's a silly thing for somebody to uh, claim. Um, objectivity is not something that I think a person can claim about themselves. I think it's silly to do that. Uh, but I try to generally call things how I see them. Um, so the first three-ish years I was covering it after I got back into this, um, which was basically 2012. Um, they were great. Jim Mora was uh, doing really well with the football program. And then the last four years have been not so great. Uh, 2015 was fine. And then it was 2016. They went four and eight. Uh, 2017, they went six and seven and fired the coach. And last year, they went three and nine. So if you're hearing my enthusiasm, Wayne, or my, I don't know, excitement about UCLA football, well, they've been dog crap for three years i mean what do you want me to do just spin that positive all the time that'd be silly and then basketball i mean my god man have you been watching it they've been like i mean they have had what one good year maybe two if you're if you're generous about 2008 2009 in the last 10 and then i mean if we're talking about the the long view i mean it's been it's been a rough 
been a rough millennium for both uh, both programs. So ferocious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I, I guess, yeah, there might be a little bit more. Look again, I phrase things probably a little bit more caustically than Ryan does about his program, but man, I mean, it's it's not something that you can really. There's not a whole lot of lipstick left to put on this pig. It's been bad. It's been really bad. And the hope is that it gets better. I mean, that's why you hire a Chip Kelly to make it better and very quickly. Uh, but going three and nine in the first year of Chip Kelly certainly wasn't good. Um, certainly wasn't ideal. And I think people painting it as such or even as close to such or as something to be ignored, I think, is silly. Um, it, it could obviously improve from there. But, I mean, starting out three and nine isn't great. Um, not a whole lot of successful tenures have started like that. Um, and then basketball, I mean, we'll see if they nail the hire, but the last time they hired a coach, I think, uh, most people with a clue, uh, knew it was pretty much dead on arrival, um, that Steve Alford was not going to get the job done because his track record gave no indication that he would get the job done and no bit of his reputation as a coach gave any indication that he was going to get the job done. Um, so yeah, nail the hire and then we'll see where we go with basketball. But, um, no, I mean, it's it's just it's been bad. So I'm not going to say it's good. All right. Uh, you want to do Jays? I do. All right. Jay in Ukaipa. USC spring ball. Ryan and Dave, but mostly Ryan. Why the mass exodus of wide receivers from USC, especially considering the change to an offense that will likely utilize more receivers? How do you feel about the wide receiver and DB depth for spring ball? Yeah, we kind of touched on this. It's not good. Um, why? I think there's just a lot of turmoil and if you look at you know when you still had a lot of turmoil when you switch coaches usc switched their you know beloved receiver coach out uh t martin you also switched out your defensive back coach those are two positions that were hit the hardest um i think for like uh avalis jones who was a more recent one i think that's more of a family thing he's from the south guy like trayvon sydney kind of surprises me because i thought he would come in and, and do really well brew mccoy was you know, that was Brew McCoy. That, you know, that was, that was a whole different situation. Um, but yeah, that, you know, some of the guys are just like, Hey, they're not, they're not right. You know, going to be the starter. You're going to look somewhere else. I think a guy like Trayvon Sidney could have been starting, you know, um, I think Vales Jones could have been starting once Trayvon Sidney left. So yeah, it's, it's kind of curious to me. Um, but when you have that kind of instability and you got coaching turnover and all that, it's just, it, I don't think morale is very good. I don't think a lot of people feel really good about the direction of the way things are going. I know Lin Swan said he wanted stability, bringing the coach back in this, you know, this tumultuous situation. I don't think that's creating any sort of stability. And you're seeing that with all the players kind of entering the transfer portal. And after spring football, you might see some more guys going to the transfer portal. So uh, I don't think this is over. Um, and that's, you know, you make a, a questionable controversial decision by bringing back a head coach that most people felt, you should have moved on from. This is the sort of thing I think that happens. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, okay, we got this is from Brian. He says he's a UCLA guy too. He said, "Enjoy the podcast, gentlemen. I don't mind it being so uh, SoCal centric since I'm a UCLA alum. I have a couple questions. How has the departure of former four and five star recruits affected UCLA's recruiting? Have the former players muddied the water, so to speak?" Hmm. 
Um, I haven't gotten that sense. Um, nothing we've heard has indicated that. Um, I think most of the guys who've left have done it for personal reasons or just not a great fit. But I don't, I don't know that that often happens where a player being discontented with his role has a big effect on, like, say, the pipeline from a particular program. It can happen. I've heard instances of it, but usually it's when something is significantly wrong. I think this was just the usual kind of clearing out of a program when a new coach comes in. And I think everyone kind of treats it as such um, where it's sort of, you know, just understood that this sort of thing happens. And I don't think Chip Kelly wasn't bad about how he, um, you know, every coach does it. They're clearing out guys and they let them know, hey, you know, I'll honor your scholarship, but you're probably not going to play for me because of X, Y and Z. Um, and from what I understand, it was all a lot of that stuff. So it's not, I don't think it's a huge deal. Um, I think some of the guys left with maybe some bad feelings. I'm not going to get into the names, but, um, a lot of that was on them. And I think their, their programs would understand that. Um, so I don't think, I don't think any of that has had an effect on recruiting. The main thing that has had an effect on recruiting is that UCLA didn't recruit hard last cycle. Um, and I think that's where everyone, I know we all want to have different reasons for why these things happen, but that's the main one. And that's really the thing that UCLA needs to focus on is just recruiting harder. And it sounds like they are this cycle. So that's all to the good. Speaking of that, the second question is, has the change in UCLA's approach been noticed by the recruits and high school coaches or is it too early to get a read? Well, I think so. Um, it is too early to get a solid read of it, but everything we're hearing um, from those types, like seven-on-seven seven coaches, high school coaches, recruits, is that UCLA is in touch a lot more. They're recruiting harder. Um, they're in touch with a lot of these coaches. Like They were trying to do a lot through the high school programs, um, and you and I know that a lot of this runs through seven-on-sevens these days, and I think UCLA is um, recognizing that better. Um, so I think there's a lot of really good, um, positive changes that have come from kind of on their face this cycle. We'll see how it plays out though. Um, it's, it's one thing to do it all right now, but when spring practice comes and you've got to focus on all that stuff, are they still going to spend the time they need to on recruiting? Cause that wasn't, it was not a priority when they were coaching last year. It wasn't a priority when they were coaching in spring. It wasn't a priority when they were coaching in the fall. You have to maintain it year round. It has to be a big deal. It has to be a main focus of the program, not at the expense of coaching on the field, but in addition to that's why all these guys are super highly paid. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if we're still hearing the same stuff when we touch in with all these guys in May and June, if we still hear all this stuff when we touch in with them in September and October. Um, but that's going to be as we go along, but so far so good this cycle. All right. Uh, you want to do Oliver's? I will. Uh, talent development at the LA schools. Uh, hi guys. Love the podcast. Thank you for getting me through the nine months. That is the off season. I'm not sure why I love a sport that is overseen by you got the drop. Oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. God, you're not reading along. I Damn am. It, Ryan. No, but I hit the button and it like brought up a different screen. The truth is we all know champagne. Larry likes to roll large, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> All right, so I'm not sure why I love a sport that is overseen by Champagne Larry. Uh, has the worst officiating known to man. Somehow I actually missed glasses ref this year and has no shot of ever making the playoffs, but I do for some reason. Maybe I should get into self-flagellation. Wow. Uh, my question for the two of you is, can you give me your top five busts? Do you know what self-flagellation is? Uh, no. So that's hitting yourself. It's basically like um, 
I mean, it's it's. It, I think technically it might even be whipping yourself, but basically it's punishment. Um, I think there's a religious context to it. Self-inflicted, like self-inflicted wounds for like a higher like purpose of some sort. Like I sinned, I'm going to. You know, yeah, it's yeah, it's masochistic. Myself. Okay, exactly. Um, sort of mortification of the flesh stuff. Um, all right. Anyway, my question for the two of you is: Can you give me your top five busts from your respective schools? Boy, howdy. For the past few decades, the bottom guy in a normal USC or UCLA recruiting class would be a top three guy in most other teams' classes. I'm sure that was true this year as well, right, Dave? Anyway, who are the top five guys who are highly ranked and had your respective staffs turn them into undrafted free agents? And by that, I don't mean a Jack Jones-type bust. I mean a guy like Patrick Turner, Kenny Bigelow, Jalen Phillips, or Ellis McCarthy that was never developed. Okay. You think we can answer that? Those are some good names. Uh, I feel like we just did this, but we could... Do it we again. did our we did our one bust. Um, let me pull up my commitment sheet. Just let me just start at the beginning. Hang on. All right. So Priest Willis, I think, was my number one last time, um, which was my biggest bust. Uh, I think you could also. I mean, there were a lot of guys in that 2013 class that busted at UCLA. Uh, Tahan Goodman was another one. Um, Ashanti Willard never played, and he was an Elite Eleven winner. Um, a lot of four stars busted in that class. I don't, uh, there's a long, long list of them. Um, five star busts are tougher. Um, I think I, I wouldn't even throw Jalen Phillips in there because, um, we don't know how his career is going to pan out. I mean, certainly it didn't work out at UCLA, but if he turns out to be really good at Miami, then, well, that's, that's more of a UCLA thing than him being a bust. So, so Jamabo, where do people stand on that? I oh, mean, he was he, a five-star and he played a bunch, but he wasn't great. He was productive, uh, he yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was fine. Um, I don't know. Five is kind of tough because then you start getting into, well, I mean, there's a certain level of, like, attrition rate at the four-star level that doesn't even, I mean, I know USC has had a lot more five-star guys generally, and so they've had more five-star busts. Yeah. Like, you could go, like, Joseph Lewis from a couple years ago. I mean, I think he could have been... Productive. Oh, Mike Juarez. Mike Juarez. Oh, uh, yeah. If he doesn't, if he doesn't turn it on massively, I mean, there was talk he might medically retire last year. Um, he's got two more years left. So if he doesn't turn it on, that's going to be number one with a bullet. Yeah. Uh, so if I just do five stars, I'll do Joseph Lewis, uh, then probably uh, Olawali Patiku. He would be one. He never really did much of anything. Um, uh, let's see. Osa Messina, but that was off the field. Yeah. Um, thing. I'm just going through the list. There's like one, at least one five star bust in every class. Uh, they were pretty good for 2000 with the Adore Jackson, Juju Smith one. I mean, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, Ricky Town. He was pretty bad. Max uh, Brown. Yeah. I mean, he started though. Like he was, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But he wasn't, uh, he was like the number one quarterback in the country. So he wasn't, you know, up to that, he never really played at that level. Yeah, and that's like the Leon McQuay thing, too. He started a bunch. I don't think he ever was at a five-star level, though. Yeah, Jordan Simmons was pretty highly ranked and never really did much, but he's actually been in the NFL for a while. So it's funny, like, he just never got it, got it going in college, but he's still playing, like, uh, in the NFL more. Um, yeah. Or that bum Juju Smith. Yeah, Juju Smith, he just never did anything. He's not the yeah. number one receiver for the – Steelers now and <laughs> which I always thought he would end up being like a uh 
Kyle Prater was a pretty big bust. Um, he came in the same class as like Robert Woods. Um, Dylan Baxter was a big bust. That was two. Okay. Marky for the class of 2010, Kyle Prater was a five-star wide receiver bust. He ended up transferring to like uh, Northwestern. Dylan Baxter was complete bust. He was a five-star all-purpose back. And then Marky Thambles transferred in from uh, Tennessee, I believe it was. He was a five-star by some. I think Rivals had him a five-star. He was a four-star, and he bust. So, like, yeah, that was a pretty big one. Um, yeah, there's a lot of guys. Uh, I'm blanking on the guy that was in Reggie Bush's class. Why am I? Um, the kid from, oh, why am I blanking? Uh, he's the kid from, uh, shoot. Oh, never mind. But he was bad too. There's a bunch of guys that were bad. Uh, uh, Whitney Lewis. That's the one I was thinking of from, uh, oh, the great Saint, one. Sam Bonaventure. Yeah. yeah. He was actually, I think ranked ahead of, uh, Reggie Bush or something. And he was the number two prospect nationally that year, apparently. Yeah. So Reggie Bush was good. Um, but yeah, oof, that was bad. So, yeah, there's a lot of good – I mean, just just do five stars for USC. There's a ton of busts. All right, and then he's got a follow-up. If you hate my question, maybe you can answer another. Oh, Uh-oh. wow. Oh, wow. If each Pac-12 team were a Disney princess, who would they be? <laughs> or if each Pac-12 team were a type of amphibian, who would they be? Your choice. You would be better Damn. at the Disney princess ones. I don't – I'm not even going to go with the amphibian ones. No, I'm not doing this. <sighs> I mean, I think I'm wow. Too, I'm too tired for this. Disney princess. I don't even know if there are 12 I can think of off the top. Ah, there are. Come on. Let's be real. Let's be real about who I am at this stage of my life. I mean, you're talking you're talking Jasmine. You're talking Belle. You're talking Nala, like a lioness. Who out there is – which which program do you think is a lioness? A lioness? Who's that one? Yeah. I mean, That's a- Nala. Come on. What, are you, what, what kind of game do you think this is? What I don't know a lot of Disney princesses. That's Lion King. That's that's the that's the that's the lady Lady Lion. Okay. So she's she's Simba's uh, Simba's boo. Um, They're coming out with a new one of those, right? Like a they really are live action. Um, wow. I'll be I'll be I'll be watching that probably with my children. Um, you got you got the modern ones. You've got uh, Tiana from Princess and the Frog. You've got Anna and Elsa sisters. Uh, but they're kind of into some fighting. So I think if you're going Anna and Elsa, that's a rivalry, right? Um, yeah. You know, one is all powerful. One's kind of goofy. Um, one is, you know, kind of standoffish, builds a big ice castle, doesn't really, uh, you know, doesn't really know how to behave normally. Um, the other one just kind of, you know, not really realizing her potential. Um, but, you know, she's nice enough. So that's like, it feels like a USC-UCLA relationship, yeah, right? Could be, sure. Yeah. Like who, would, kind of uh, who would Rapunzel be? Rapunzel, long hair, um, you know, kind of isolated. But in but a she's, tower. She's, but she's also coming out of her shell, right? So it's somebody, It's that's a program that has been, you know, maybe shut up for a while, but now is starting to sow its oats a little bit. So maybe that's a Washington State. I was thinking Washington State. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, Princess Tiana, she turns, she's a, she's a kind of a, 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 a Bake shop, or I think a bake shop owner or a restaurant owner, who turns into a frog when she kisses a frog because she's trying to get her uh, uh, make a wish, basically. Um, and then, uh, and then she she uh, learns to love, learns to love this frog, and then um, owns a restaurant at the end of it. 
So she goes from kind of rags to riches, but has to deal with some setbacks along the way. Okay. So, I mean, who are we talking about there? I mean, we're talking about a program that went from being pretty bad to pretty good, but had to deal with some issues along the way. That feels kind of Utah to me. Okay. I don't know why. It feels like Utah to me. You know, they had a bump in the road. So they were really good Mountain West. Then they had a bump in the road right when they started in the Pac-12. But now they've gotten their feel for it, and now they're back to the top. I think that's a that's a Princess Tiana to me. I like it. Okay, um, Ariel. Ariel, Little Mermaid. We're talking about going from having a fin and being a fish out of water to, uh, to you know, winning the prince and the whole thing. Again, feels like a, a, a recent addition. Want to call them Colorado? And there's an emergence. There's like a transformation there, right? Yeah, a little bit of a transformation. Okay. So Colorado went from a Big 12 to a Pac-12. That seems about right, huh? Sure. Okay. I'll go with that. Okay. All right. Um, Snow White or something? Like, you want to do old school? Snow White with seven dwarves. Um, <laughs> you know? Uh, Poison Apple. What's uh, evil princess or whatever? Evil queen or witch or whatever? Yeah. So she's got an adversary, like a real adversary who's coming after her. Um, doesn't much care for her. Um, one of the Bay Area schools, maybe, or yeah, I'm, I was kind of thinking there's a little bit of Stanford to Snow White. Okay, a little bit, but like, who's coming after Stanford, right? I mean, so maybe Snow White is Cal. Okay, why not? And then, Stan- well, but but then, but then, like, no, that doesn't really fit. That, but who are the seven dwarves then? Hmm. Would, yeah, this one's tough. Snow White, let's put a pin in Snow White. Okay. We'll think about Snow White a little bit more later. All right, Cinderella. All right, so we've got Cinderella, who's basically just um poor chick, goes and uh goes to a ball and um, you know, has a tough life, puts the slipper on, you know, that whole deal, then loses her slipper, and they're trying to figure out who she is. And uh but she goes from like Again. Yeah, I think that's that feels like Oregon. Yeah. You know, pretending to be that thing and then actually becoming <laughs> that thing. Right. You know what I mean? Like faking it until they make it. With all that the uniforms, like, like they get the, you know, the fancy, you turn the pumpkin into a, right. you know, carriage and all that stuff. That feels right. That feels right. Okay. Um, all right. What else we got? We got Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> Sleeping Beauty. Oh. Just asleep until something else comes along and wakes it on up. Um, that could be Stanford, like. Stanford was that asleep for Stanford. decades. That feels like Stanford. That feels like Stanford because Stanford really is a beauty, but you got to wake that thing up. Right. There was the so Tyrone Willingham, you know, whatever uh, time, and then it, you know, the, then Harbaugh took over. It was like getting kissed by a prince. Yeah. All right. What else we got? Um, what other Disney movies are there? Uh, we got Moana. So I didn't see that one. All right. So we're talking about um, a young girl lives on a Polynesian island. Um, and she has to go out in search of, um, a island God to basically, um, turn on the good things for her island again, because they're like running out of water and a bunch of other stuff. So she's like, I'm going to go, you know, take care of some stuff. Um, and she meets a lot of friends and adventures along the way. It's like a, kind of like a, almost a retelling of the Odyssey in some ways. Um, but it is a, uh, adventure story about, uh, basically a young girl realizing her potential. Um, when you said Polynesian Island, I'm just thinking Utah. Yeah, but we've already done Utah. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, she's dependent on like a huge, I mean, uh, basically a huge like Polynesian god named Maui. 
Um, so again, it is okay. Moana is Washington because they're they're hitting up the islands a lot more, and okay. their recruiting is now trending a lot more towards the island. They did, and yeah. I think that's what's gonna that's what's really gonna put them over the top and put them back in the national title race here very soon. Um, and basically, that's Maui and her uh, reactivating the island and making everything good again. Okay, um, that's Moana. Um, boy, what what about the um? Uh, the, the genie one, what's the, uh, yeah, Aladdin. So Aladdin. Jasmine, Jasmine is, uh, not a main character. So this might fit one of the Arizona schools cause they haven't really been, uh, super in the PAC 12 conversation historically. They're, they're somewhat newcomers. Um, Jasmine is, I mean, for my money, the best princess. Um, but she's just, I mean, I, I, I think she's kind of, I don't know. I don't really know if I ascribe much personality to to Jasmine. Like, I've also seen Aladdin in like a million years, so that's that one's kind of tough for me. You got any thoughts on on how how Jasmine fits in? Well, she was her suitor was uh, like a pauper, and then became a prince to impress her. What would that? Mm-hmm. Could we use that angle somehow? Um, Mm-hmm. Who could that be? Yeah, that's that one's tough. Could that be Oregon State? And it's like, uh, no, no, that wouldn't work. I don't know. That that's a hard one. I mean, maybe it's like a. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we would assign Anna and Elsa to somebody else, and Jasmine would be like a USC because they're upset that they can't go be independent. You know, because <laughs> that whole thing and oh, they have yeah. to they're they're like in line with having to marry a prince instead of something she loves. You know, I think that feels like USC where the realities of life are dictating a certain thing that USC and their like weird fantasies wants out, like something else. So, OK, let's let's give Anna and Elsa to Arizona because we don't know what to do with them. So let's just say they're Anna and Elsa, whatever, in whatever order you want, Arizona fans. And then Jasmine is USC. Okay. Uh, what would UCLA be then? Oh God, I don't know. I this is tough. Think, I can't even think of any more princesses. I'm not well, sure. Well, okay. All right. So animated Disney movies. I'm, I'm just gonna pull up the list so we've got this fully in front of us. Um, you've also got like um, Lady and the Tramp. You've got Pocahontas. Pocahontas. Oh. That's so an that's, independent. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of a. a, a person in a native land um you know good-hearted um trying to help out the people who are coming there um but beset by some evils as they happen falling in love um i don't know if that applies i actually can't do this anymore it is driving me absolutely insane because um all i think about all the time are (laughs) disney movies um so yeah, we'll we'll go and we'll say that. Um, I think we did pretty good. Like, send us more ideas if you have them. You know. Yeah, we'll say we'll say Pocahontas is uh, is UCLA for lack of anything better to think about. Okay, I, I think we Great. got them all. Hopefully, we left out of school. Someone's gonna be mad at us. Uh, this yep. is from Jackie R. UCLA linebackers. We need Josh Woods back healthy. Uh, and how big a role slash impact will the Tota uh, Jackson play this season? And will he play linebacker? Think he'll start? Chris Barnes rocked it last year. Uh, 
Lokini's senior year will be awesome. Praying for Mike. Hope he's happy. That's the first part of it. Okay. Um, I think Daytona Jackson will play. Um, I don't think he's going to play any linebacker. Uh, he's pretty big. Um, I, I think he's pretty much a pure defensive lineman, but he will provide some pass rush, so that's good. Um, I don't know if he'll start. I would say it's going to depend. JC, guys, it's t- so tough to project. You have to really see him. Um See how they look compared to the other guys because it can vary. Guys coming in from JC, like just uh, how quickly they get used to the speed of things and everything. So um, I would say probably won't start the year, um, but we'll see. And then, uh, yeah, I agree with your uh, your linebacker assessments. Uh, and then he says, and who would win nine holes at the Riv? Cameron Polifito, uh, George Tidal, Nakia. This, maybe he means Max Nikias, the former USC president, or Lynn Swan. Uh, fours up with eight clap and staying strong in Westwood. Westwood, Jackie R. Okay, I'm not sure what that. So, so Pula Fito is the uh, USC professor who was. Um, which one is this? He was the dean of the Keck School of Medicine. Who? Oh, uh, that's the guy that, that the had meth, like the the overdosing prostitute in his hotel room. <laughs> and the other guy, Todd uh, Tyndall, was the uh, uh, the uh, what's it called? Not OBGYN, but there was a gynecologist that had like decades worth of complaints yeah. against him. I think he means. Uh, not Nakia, like uh, Max Nakias, the president yeah. of Lin Swan. I think Lin Swan plays the most golf of those guys, so I would go with Lin Swan. Okay, that seems right. Yeah. Okay, spring training. Love the term spring training better than spring practice. You like it too? Go Bruins are using that phrase, marketing or genius. We won 34-27. Yeah, I don't. Go Bruins are using that phrase, marketing or genius. Do you understand the question? Not really, The no. second part? Do you? Okay, I understand the first part. I don't understand the second part. So okay. I will respond to the first part. <laughs> I I don't care at all, but I think it is like it feels like a verbal tick when uh, Chip Kelly consistently refers to spring practice or any kind of practice as training, and it makes me laugh because nobody else calls it that. So it's just it's it's kind of a just an interesting odd thing. But I don't care at all what what they call it. Yeah, I, I think I'm with Chris Cartman where it's insane to call it spring if it's starting in winter. But other than that, I don't care. Yeah, I don't like spring training either. I like spring. I, I'm I like spring practice. I'm uh, warming up to spring camp because it's usually fall mm. camp and spring practice. I'm, yeah. I'm okay with spring camp now for whatever reason. I've mellowed in my old age. I don't like spring training. That's baseball to me. So. My problem always with camp, and I, I use it because I, I don't have any principles that I actually abide by, but um, uh, they're not camping. <laughs> like, why are we calling this camp if they're not actually camping? Like, why is a day camp even – why is that a thing that exists? You're not camping. <laughs> camping involves a tent. Okay? I, think, I think fall camps used to be where they would go. Yeah, they'd go stay somewhere. Right. But if you're doing it on your campus, it's not camp. You're just practicing a bunch. Yeah. You're practicing a bunch in a concentrated period of time. Call it a concentrated series of practices. And there's less concentration now. Like there, It is. And it's less concentration. You're not doing the two-a-days at anywhere near that level. So come on. It's, yeah. it's not camp. You're not camping. Weird stuff. There are no s'mores. None. 
I love s'mores. Aren't they good? Duh. I got to eat some before uh, before Wednesday. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to do my no sweets for Lent again, Dave. That's very hard for me because I have the palate of a 15 year old boy. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, gonna that's be gonna tough. be tough. So that's what 40 days. 40 days, man. 40 Damn, days. it's tough. We'll see, but I need to lose some weight, so maybe that's like a little bit of motivation too. Yeah, hey, that's that's good motivation. Whenever you can do dual motivations for anything you're doing, that's ideal, yeah. right? We'll we'll try it out. Um, but then I love eating those. Are you a, are you an Easter fan, like candy, like Easter candy fan, or no? I mean, I'm not I'm not opposed by any stretch of the okay. imagination. The uh, the Cadbury cream eggs are like I love those, those. are those are those are really choice. You like those? Anything any of those egg shaped things are great. Actually, the mini eggs are like they're like M and M's on steroids. They're so or good. like I I feel like the Reese's that are in egg shapes are somehow better than the Reese's that yes. are not in egg shapes. They're good. You know I, what I mean? The ratio of chocolate to to peanut butter. It's is just it's perfect. I think everything should be egg shaped. <laughs> I do like. I'm glad everything in like, life should be egg shaped. I'm glad that you like the Cadbury cream eggs. And if we keep eating all of these things, we too. <laughs> will be egg-shaped. <laughs> Some people just hate the cre- cream eggs, so I'm glad that you... Like, I could have c- completely pictured you say, those are the worst things ever. People can't handle that. You know what's garbage? Let's let's lay this out there. You know what is garbage? Uh, Halloween-specific candy, and I'm talking about you, candy corn. You are trash. <laughs> you are trash. You have the look and feel of a traffic cone. You suck. <laughs> See, I like candy corn. <laughs> garbage absolute garbage the, the, but cadbury cream eggs those are awesome those okay are great good. that's good anybody what? who hates those is a uh is an avowed communist yeah don't like that all right well we went over two hours this time did, did we need really to, did did we need to do that in early march god i i think there's going to be a lot of people who are very upset with our disney conversation like who are just like look i i was with you for an hour and 45 minutes of your absolute bullshit but when we got to like what Disney princess is Arizona going to be, I tuned out and I'm never <sighs> listening to you again. Yeah. I think that's where we are with I this, hope not. this show. I hope that's not what No, no, no. I think, I think it's good because we filter those people out for the really good stuff here at the end. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Cadbury cream egg. <laughs> this was, this was good. I feel like also when our shows go over two hours, we hit a point where um, we realize we're not making sense anymore and we lean into it. And I think that's that's a good place to yeah. be, especially when you're on a verbal medium right. with people who aren't there. At it's least great. we had John up front. Like that's good. We got John out of the way. And then we did. You could we tune did. out after that and you you know, you you, you don't want to put John at the end because then people like after if you put John after the Disney princesses, there no one's gonna hear John. Right. Right. Or the people that do are going to be, wow, <laughs> really psychotic. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, that's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Thanks again for tuning in to the Podcast of Champions. Uh, We'll talk to you next time.